Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. And we are now dead in the middle of our summer division off-season reviews, uh, the mother of all off-season content. If you're not familiar with it, every single year we dedicate an entire episode, usually uh, in the realm of two-plus hours per division, going over every single change to every single team year over year. Coaching changes, UDFAs, draft picks, free agents, you name it. We talk about every single aspect of all of these teams. Again, division by division. And today we're doing the AFC West. Uh, one of the uh, inarguably powerhouse divisions. All four teams are really, really good. Even the worst team is average at best. Uh, I'm really excited to see what happens with this division this year. But before we get into all of it, EJ, buddy, how you doing and what are you drinking? I'm good. Summer weather's hit, which means it's beer drinking season. We got content for, I was going to say days, but it's more like weeks by the time you add up all the hours we put into it. This is one of the most exciting divisions in football. Like you said, every team is worth watching every Sunday. Uh, None of these teams are dogs. They all have a ton of young talent. They added a bunch more in the draft and UDFA. We'll talk about all that. Uh, We've got some interesting coaching changes, which might make good teams in the division better. Uh, and what do I have to drink? I have uh, a beer from a brewery I'm familiar with, but not a particular style. I have tried from them. This is the Red Cap Irish style red ale from Coolshin Brewing uh, up north in uh, Washington, uh, right near the Canadian border. Four point eight percent by volume, only twenty one IBUs, uh, so not on the bitter side. Should be a good drink. And as you can see, it's covered with condensation because it's warm outside now which doesn't always happen in Washington, but uh, is happening right now. So we got short sleeves and cold beer. What do you got? Uh, so I'm pretty basic tonight. I just have coffee because somebody needs to stay up late editing. And if I took any sips of this, which, oh. again, I just want to sh- – I'm not drinking it tonight, but I want to shout them out. Uh, Drift is a local micro distillery, and I mean micro, down in San Clemente, California, that me and the wife stumbled into last weekend. Uh, it's a small family operation. If you're familiar with Bison, Kansas, just outside of Kansas City, they have a family wheat farm there. They take all the wheat from the family farm, send it to like the nephew of the family who's got the distillery out here in California, and they make a really, really good weeded whiskey. So I bought a bottle while I was there. Uh, and yeah, Drift Distillery. I don't know if they ship anywhere outside of California, but 
if you're in the Southern California area, go down there. It's really damn good whiskey. Pretty good food, too. It's all Casey-style barbecue, so highly recommend that. Uh, and I, I thought it was appropriate, considering we're doing the AFC West this week, and we got, we're talking Chiefs a little bit later in the show. So uh, why don't we start off here with talking Chargers a little bit, who, at least for me, are one of the teams out of the entire NFL that I'm really, really looking forward to this season. Uh, in terms of roster construction, in terms of the new additions to the coaching staff, obviously Justin Herbert going into year two, one of the most fascinating teams from top to bottom. Um, and, and obviously, you know, they're in a division that's an absolute meat grinder. So I think this team is, uh, again, going to have a lot of opportunities to prove themselves. And not going to lie, I kind of feel like if there was any threat to the Chiefs in this division, it would be the Chargers, and both of their divisional games, to me, are must-see TV. What say you about the Chargers overall, kind of before we get into their coaching staff changes? Yeah, I'm excited. This was a good roster last year. Justin Herbert was a revelation. They're a very solid wide receiver core. They have tons of talent on defense. They have... uh, it's fair to say struggled <laughs> with injuries for a long time. Seems like the Chargers are always one of the hardest hit teams in the entire league in terms of losses. Didn't get to see Derwin James, one of the most exciting defensive playmakers that we highlighted when we were talking to Matt Bowen uh, on the field for a lot of last year. And now we're going to talk about a coaching change that might maximize that. So it's an exciting team. They added even more exciting talent uh, in areas where I think they needed it, um, bolstered some weaknesses. And I'm really excited to see what year two of Justin Herbert with uh, a different coaching staff looks like, because he was great. He was flat out great last year, but I think people equate that to great success. And one of my favorite things during the offseason to say is, yeah, Justin Herbert had an amazing rookie year, one of the best rookie quarterback years ever in the history of the NFL. How many games the Chargers win? And people are like, uh, if they're not Chargers fans, they're like, um... I don't know, nine, ten, <laughs> not quite. Like, not quite. <laughs> they did not win nine or ten games. Again, he didn't start for a game, game and a half. Uh, you know, freak injury to Tyrod Taylor got him on the field faster. Turned out to be sort of a blessing for that franchise to be able to see his potential. Because again, positions on Justin Herbert were split, and he just threw the lights out last year. So every week there were highlights from Herbert that you just kind of went, holy crap. Like I knew he had talent, but he really put it together. Um, And that was without a coaching staff that a lot of people thought were supporting him fully, (laughs) right? That (laughs) weren't necessarily putting him in the best positions from a coaching standpoint uh, throughout the season. Not the worst, but a lot of people were very excited uh, when the Chargers announced that they were going to go with a different coach. And this was a rumored destination for Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator from Buffalo who didn't end up leaving. Everybody wanted to see that, right? Everybody was like, man, we're so excited to see a guy that harnessed Josh Allen's abilities go work with Herbert and that receiving core. Man, Dable, one of the best play callers last year in the entire NFL. People were hot to trot for that. They don't get Dable, but we'll talk about the guy they did get, which is equally exciting, but in a different way. Yeah, and that's probably a good segue to talking about uh, this new staff, which, you know, between Robert Sala 
and uh, Brandon Staley coming into year one. Those were probably my two favorite head coaching hires this year. So Brandon Staley coming over from the Rams. He was the defensive coordinator for arguably the best defense in the entire league last year. Uh, a Vic Fangio disciple, to be sure. You know, it runs basically a variation of Fangio's system. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing, like same terminology. I would say like philosophically, they're a little bit different in terms of like pressure percentage and stuff like that. But in terms of techniques and coverages and terminology, it's damn near identical. And it, it really works, obviously, because everywhere this system goes, they tend to have defensive success. You got Joe Lombardi in year one at offensive coordinator coming over from the Saints, a longtime, uh, you know, Sean Payton disciple. Uh, Ronaldo Hill, who was Vic Fangio's DB coach last year, is now getting the DC job. So he's skyrocketing through the coaching ranks, a former DB himself. Um, and then you got Tom Telesco, a general manager, going into year nine now, who is this the third head coach that Tom Telesco's? been a GM for I think it is yeah if I remember correctly so yeah uh he's you know he's he's a very experienced GM and nobody's ever complained about Telesco's ability to bring talent into the organization the Chargers have for a long time been one of the more talented rosters in the league and now for for the first time in a long time I feel like they have a coaching staff to match that you know and this is nothing against Anthony Lynn I love Anthony Lynn as a person great position coach uh really good for the locker room Game management faltered a lot under him. Situational awareness faltered a lot under him. And I feel like with experience on the offensive side of the ball with Joe Lombardi, plus uh, two just young superstar defensive coaches in Hill and obviously Staley handling everything else, I feel like the Chargers are are in a better position now to support Justin Herbert with good game management, good play calling, good sequencing, good just a better feel for coaching a football game than maybe he got last year. Uh, Again, I'm I'm just really, really excited about what the Chargers are building here. What do you think about the staff that they brought in? And also, what's your overall feeling on Telesco as a general manager? Yeah, I'll start with Telesco. I don't disagree. He has an eye for talent. He has upgraded, I would say, the ability to acquire personnel and the personnel acquired since he's taken over the general manager spot for the Chargers. And you just see it on the roster. Like you said, one of the most talented rosters in the NFL. It's not by accident. It's not lucky. Like he restocks year after year and they get guys that fit their system. And it seems like every year in the first round for the Chargers, even though they do pretty well and they end up with a more sort of middle of the pack choice, it's rare that they win, you know, three or four games. They get one of those players, right? They get the German James. This year it's Rashawn Slater. They always grab one of those blue chip guys, right? They're they're not a team that seems to reach very much on the high picks. Uh, They'll save that for later on. But even later on, you look at this year's draft hall, we'll talk about it. There's guys later down that I really like, that that I was super excited about. Sure enough, they went to the Chargers. They're kind of like the Ravens West in that regard, right? You're looking down and you're like, man, they got that guy in the fifth round? They got that guy in the yeah. sixth round. Yep, they did every year. They're gonna they're gonna come <laughs> through. Um, 
So we, Tom Telesco and I tend to see talent apparently the same way because, again, I like the guys he's picking in the later rounds or his staff, his scouting staff is picking up in the later rounds. And then on to the coaching. I'm really excited. I like Brandon Staley a lot. One of my favorite facts about Brandon Staley is everybody knows him for defense as a Vic Fangio disciple, started on the offensive side of the ball, played offense himself as a player. So this is not a guy that has been on the defensive track the entire time and he's just bringing in somebody like Joe Lombardi and saying, you just go run the offense. I'm not going to touch that. I doubt very much that's going to happen as a former quarterback. Like he's going to be talking with Joe Lombardi and Herbert in in a huddle, the three of them, and they're going to be kicking ideas off of each other. And I love that balance, that duality. And I think Herbert really benefit from that. Of course, the defense is going to be really solid. That's where he certainly made his star over the last three or four years in the NFL. But the fact that he's got a solid grounding in offense as well uh, really makes him, I think, like you said, one of the more intriguing head co- uh, head coaching hires from this year is because he does bring a, a true balance on both sides of the ball. Lombardi, look, the Saints offense has been really good for a long time. You can say that's all Sean Payton. You can say that's all Drew Brees. But... He had a large role there, right? He has been around. He's seen how a very successful team does it year after year with reloading, changing position groups, what they stressed, what worked. Um, I'm excited to see him bring some of those concepts. Obviously, Herbert has a very different skill set than Breeze, but uh, I think that's sort of an expanded role down the field, something he certainly hasn't had for the last maybe couple of years uh, with Drew Breeze, if if you're talking honestly. So, I can't wait to see him kind of hopefully unlock and unleash Herbert as good as he was last year. I could see him not only avoiding a sophomore slump, but actually sort of uh, ascending to even a different level, which is hard to imagine because the level he played at last year, again, every week you look down and Justin Herbert was doing something amazing. Ronaldo Hill, I've got less of a take on. I remember him as a player, so yeah, I'm old. Um, <laughs> it'll be really interesting to see what he brings as, again, sort of uh, another branch on that Fangio tree of the disciple. Should be in lockstep with Staley. I'm sure that's why Brandon brought him along. And it'll be interesting on both sides of the ball to see how that balance goes, how quickly this staff gels, because you got a very talented roster. you got very talented coaches. You've got super high expectations, but it takes a little while to get everybody on the same page on both sides of the ball. And it'll be, I think for los angeles a question of how quickly both sides come together and sort of meet in the middle to start winning those close games and really those have been the achilles heel for for los angeles for the chargers for a while now is that they just they you say teams that know how to win right and it's the teams that do little things well in the right moments and they haven't been able to do that consistently and i want to see how quickly they can get there because i feel like all the pieces are in place it's just how well they mesh you know one of the things that um was an interesting talking point that i saw when when you know lombardi was brought in as offensive coordinators people were worried that the chargers were again with his background with the saints that the chargers were going to become you know like a dink and dunk ball control kind of offense and that they weren't going to utilize herbert's ability to go vertical and i'm like look joe lombardi was with the saints back in 2009 when it was bombs away you remember like the 40 to 50 yard just absolute moonshots to devry henderson and uh I mean, you know, Jimmy Graham, when he was young, when they drafted him in 2010, and then like 11 through 13, when they were just throwing seam balls to Jimmy Graham, and they would hit the out and ups in the red zone like every other game. Like, 
he has coached in a vertical offense before. They just didn't do it in the later part of Drew Brees' career because he just didn't really have the gas in his arm anymore. And now he's got a guy with Justin Herbert that's got that gas again. So I I do think that they are going to preserve the vertical element of the offense. The one difference is now they have an offensive line that can pass protect well enough to do it even more. Because remember, a lot of the deep shots that they were hitting last year, it was like against zero, where Justin Herbert was sitting back there and just getting fucking blasted while throwing these bombs to Keenan and Guyton and Williams and all them. And I mean, he was a warrior under pressure and just threw some amazing passes, which we did not see at Oregon, by the way, at least not frequently. And all of a sudden he showed up to the Chargers and was like Pat Mahomes version 2.0. I'm like, where the hell did that come from? But I loved it. So... I think they're going to they're going to look at that last year and be like if he's doing that under pressure, he can probably do it not under pressure. So they built that offensive line. I think that Joe Lombardi, it's not like he deleted the the vertical plays from his playbook. Like he still got them. They ran them all the time in New Orleans before Breeze's arm died. So all this stuff that you remember from the, you know, the 2009-2010 Saints where they were throwing 5,000 yards every single year, they're going to do that same stuff. A lot of vertical passes, a lot of switch releases down the field so that you can just get a little bit of a rub and get one step deep down the field on a DB. We're going to see all that. And the receiving core is still great. The offensive line is better. Herbert's got a cannon. I love the Lombardi hire, and people, are, I think, are sleeping a little bit on this Chargers offense. I know that sounds weird to say because they're super talented, but I do feel like people are sleeping on it. I want... I want Eckler to be healthy early and ready to go because Auckland, Austin Eckler is a lot closer to Alvin Kamara than people think. Mm-hmm. And I know people are going to, oh, hot take. You said Eckler was as good as Kamara. No, I didn't. But the difference is not marked. And you get a guy like Joe Lombardi that has been staring at Alvin Kamara in practice and games for the last, you know, as long as he's been in the league, right? And suddenly he gets a guy like Austin Eckler, who is underrated, has, you know, started to ascend over the last couple of years and be appreciated as, hey, this guy is going to put up yards from scrimmage, right? Great receiver, very good runner, super productive on a regular basis, gets injured, doesn't have a full season. I hope he comes back healthy because he has a skill set that is quite comparable to Kamaris. Does he have the same mm. top end? No, he doesn't. Is he really close? A lot closer than a lot of people think he is. And Lombardi knows how to use him, and that's exciting. So I really hope he comes back quickly. And then the idea that, you know, Drew Brees didn't throw deep. Like, he he didn't become the NFL's all-time passing leader <laughs> by throwing three-yard screens for just a lot of years in the league. Like, that's not how it happened, folks. If you look back say three and four years you don't even have to go all the way back to nine and ten you know young jimmy graham they were still taking regular deep shots with drew and he was hitting them right he was a very good deep passer and has been for his entire career so yeah lombardi's got that he now has a young cannon that quite frankly has the arm that drew Brees maybe wished he had um, drew Brees' arm was good it's not justin herbert's arm and hopefully, yeah, Herbert takes a little bit less punishment because you're right. We saw him take huge shots throwing the ball. A lot of times we saw him rolling out because he's a lot more mobile than a lot of people give him credit for. He's a good runner. He's fairly fast. And when he gets yeah. away from the rush, 
he can get out, and with that torque he's got on his arm, he can still put it 50 and 60 yards downfield on a dime, running sideways away from pressure. And he did a lot last year. Um, and he'll let it go. That's one of the things I liked about him as a young quarterback is that he will give his receivers a chance, right? If they're in coverage, he will still throw it up there, and he's got guys that can go get it. He's got big receivers, talented guys, veterans that can go get it. So you add Lombardi to that mix, and I just I want to see that whole thing gel, the running attack. I want to see Herbert continue to ascend. I want to see the receivers continue to be very good as they have been. Um, yeah, I I just it's an exciting proposition. And I think in the draft they made a, a couple key picks that accentuated what makes Herbert special. And by the way, I, I feel like I every time we talk about Justin Herbert, I have to reiterate this. Pretty much forever. He's special. Okay. He's special. I, I still get it in my mentions every single week. Chargers fans, I am pleading with you to listen to me right now. He's special. I'm saying the words. I'm sorry. He's really fucking good. He's really good. No, it's uh, true. But he is. <laughs> the the draft the draft they had, I think, was accentuating uh what makes Herbert uh somebody that should be feared in the AFC for a long time. You know, Rashawn Slater getting him at, at 13 was a coup. Everybody, myself included, did not expect Slater to get that far. And I think the debate between Sewell and Slater is tackle one and tackle two was, it was more of a debate than I think people realize. Like they, they do different stuff well, but I think the, the grades were very, very comparable. Uh, and Slater in particular when you watch him as a run blocker on zone runs doing like backside cutoffs, it's ridiculous. Like that pick helps Eckler as much as it does Herbert. Like, cause, because his ability in the run game to slip a defensive end without getting held up, get to the second level, get on a will and completely obliterate him 15 yards down the field without, you know, getting juked in space. There's not a lot of tackles that can do that. There's a lot of tackles that are big and strong, but the location of a small, fast linebacker on the second level is kind of a rare skill set. That's why a lot of people wanted him at guard, not because he couldn't play tackle, but just because, again, it's, it's hard to find a guard that can do that too. And so I think looking at the ability for him to get on second-level linebackers and slip that defensive end, I think we're going to see a lot of zone read uh, with him because they finally have a tackle that can – do it well and not to mention Herbert's a threat with his legs too so we're going to see a lot of zone read which is going to open up massive backside lanes for Eckler as a pass protector he's extremely athletic I know there's some length concerns but the feet are still really damn good and I don't know I feel like the Slater pick was not just the obvious pick but it was also the best pick to make for Herbert's career so I'm a big fan of what they did there in round two, they got Asante Samuel, which I know we've talked multiple times on the podcast about how much we both love that pick, but he's a perfect scheme fit in Brandon Staley's defense. Um, basically a Kyle Fuller Jr., in my opinion, pretty much identical skill set, and he's going to be playing that same role, which in that Vic Fangio, Brandon Staley-ish style defense, so that was perfect for them. Uh, Josh Palmer, uh, vertical ability and ball skills, which if you look at the theme of the Chargers receiving core, he fits right in. <laughs> Absolutely perfect match for what they want to do in a vertical passing game. Uh, Trey McKitty in round three, he was their other third round pick. 
little early for me. I don't know about you, a little bit early for me, but Joe Lombardi is a guy who really prioritized the tight end position, and this was a rather weak tight end class. So I think his thought process was, I'm going to get one while I can. And he saw Trey McKitty, who had a little bit of, of seam stretching ability, and he's like, ah, I'm going I'm to get the last one of those guys before we got nothing left to work with. Uh, Chris Rump from Duke. Uh, as a fourth round pick, that one was interesting to me. I can see why they did it considering his size and build and the role that he would play in that defense as, I don't know if he's going to go backwards as well as like the, the strong side edge would normally do. So if anything, I think he's going to be more of a weak side edge behind Joey. Uh, but again, I think he's a perfect fit for that kind of role. So I can see why they took him in the fourth round again, a little little slightly early for me on him, but I can understand the fit. Uh, Brennan, uh, Brennan Jaimez, <laughs> who we were corrected by Brandon Thorne about his pronunciation for his name, Jaimez. It's not James out of Nebraska. He's a tackle in the fifth round pick. Uh, you and I, I think, both agreed that we did not expect him to go in the fifth round. Really easy mover at his size. I think he could play tackle or guard and be very good at it. Uh, so him is a developmental tackle behind Balaga and a swing tackle is a rookie because, again, Balaga doesn't have much time left in his career. Love that pick. Uh, Nick Neiman from Iowa, interior linebacker, more of a special teams guy to me. Larry Roundtree, considering their backfield, probably special teams. I don't think he has a ton of juice. And, like, when I look at Eckler and I look at um, the UCLA kid they got last year, who you and I both love. Josh Kelly. Yeah, like, he's not... He's not the same level of running back as any of them. So if anything, he'll, he'll make the team on special teams. And then Mark Webb from Georgia, one of these perennially underrated Georgia DBs that always goes late on day three and then sticks in the league for eight years. And everybody wonders how he went that late. And you're like, well, <laughs> who knows? It, Georgia just gets underdrafted for some reason. But again, top to bottom, overall, very, very, very good draft class. And every single pick, considering system fit, I felt was justifiable. Yeah, I don't think there's a bad one in the bunch. There's better and more exciting. To go with the Slater pick, we talked with Brandon about this in terms of tackle or guard. Where would you put him? And he said, look, he's going to be great at either. And honestly, if they put him at guard, I think they have a greater need at tackle, so I hope they give him a shot there because he can absolutely play tackle in the league. Like Hands down, not a question about that. If they put him at guard, I would care less about that on the Chargers, given Joe Lombardi's experience with the Saints, than I would on a lot of other teams. Because the Saints mm-hmm. always prioritize their interior trio. Drew Brees hated interior pressure as a shorter quarterback. They wanted that core there. It's not that the Saints didn't get good tackles. They did. But they always prioritized those interior three. And so if they say Rayshon Slater is going to be part of that wall in front of Herbert and he's going to play guard, I'd be fine with it because, like you said, it's not because he can't play guard. He would have been an awesome guard. But I think their need at tackle is greater, and he can play tackle very well. So I hope they give him a chance at tackle. Sante Samuel Jr. is Kyle Fuller Jr. in the same (laughs) defense, same role, same skill set. In my notes, I put, man, his play style is just like Kyle Fuller. Back off, back off, back off, wait, break on the ball, and is very effective doing that. Josh Palmer, sneaky pick. I low-key love this pick not for this year josh yeah, palmer's well, I mean, they, gonna he's gonna they've sit got and learn. five guys ahead of him yeah he's i'd say he's got four 
four guys ahead of him, maybe three. I really like Josh Palmer. I think he was underrated. Given that, this is not going to be the year he breaks out. Is he going to make a few plays? Yeah, he's going to make the roster absolutely. He's going to make a few plays. As their receivers start to age out or they start to have to look at big money to reassign them, Palmer's going to be sitting there. And I I think he takes one of those slots very soon. He's that good. Do not sleep on Josh Palmer. Trey McKitty, great hands. I didn't like the legs as much. Um, didn't think, you know, he's tight in the hips. Um, amazing hands. Made a couple of one-handed grabs at the Senior Bowl that really made me go back and look at his tape. And I was like, nope, still don't like the legs. Hands are great. Yeah. Um, so, again, a little bit early for me. Not a bad player. Not a guy I dislike. Just I was surprised in the third, like, already. But, again, not a very deep tight end class can drive that kind of a selection. Chris Rump was a guy that was slated uh, in a lot of uh, mock drafts to go to Chicago because his dad's the defensive line coach. So who who better to have beta? Is he? Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, but guess what? Uh, somebody that uh, understands that Chicago defense goes, yeah, we can use him here. Um, so again, a little bit early on Rump, but not really. Uh, again, there's so much variance in this draft with the difference in information, the late injury information, everything else. The fact that Chris Rump went in the fourth instead of early in the sixth or middle of the fifth, like it's really not that much of a difference. It's just how much they like him in their system. Brandon Hymas, potential starter within two years. I absolutely think that guy can start. For now, He's he probably makes the 53 as the top swing because he's that good, and I think he can start within a couple of years. Larry Roundtree was a guy that on second watch I went back and went, man, you're going to get this guy, and I said in my notes, in the fifth or the sixth, and he's going to outperform that draft status. I think he could be RB2. Like, maybe not right away, but he shows in quick bursts, especially passing game on the edge. Now, who does that sound like? <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't have to change the game plan when you put a Larry Roundtree in for an Austin Eckler. Is he as good as Eckler? No, he's not as dynamic, but he is really quick in short areas and has good hands in the short passing game. And the Chargers know how to do that. You know, Saints knew how to do that under Lombardi. Like, Roundtree was a pick for a reason. They got a great value with him. And Mark Webb is just one of those guys where people are like, well, is he a corner? Is he a nickel? Is he a safety? Uh, and we were on with Matt Bowen, and he said, slot safety, right? I just made that word up. And I think Mark Webb is a slot safety. <laughs> I think that's, that's he's the role a, he's going to play. He's a well-coached Georgia DB that tackled well in the SEC against a bunch of future first-round pick receivers. And he went in the seventh round. Yeah. If he played at Alabama, they would have called him star and he would have gone around higher. <laughs> it's, so. I don't know. Georgia, Georgia is just perennially underrated in terms of the players they put in the NFL. And I know they get first round picks all the time and everything like that. But like you look at the dudes that Georgia has put into the NFL in the last 10 years. I And loaded at DB. And they're uh, this, they're always they're underdrafted. They're all underdrafted. I don't get it. Yeah, with the exception of Stokes because he ran a four two whatever. Uh, yeah. But you know, loaded a DB and just a little heads up to college football fans out there. Also reloaded. Got two guys from the transfer portal this week. That oh man, if you're not rooting for Georgia to win some big games and upset some people, uh, they're 
they're retooled already. Doesn't matter that they yeah. got four guys drafted out of the <laughs> secondary. They're going to make a run in the SEC this year again. So I'm with you there. Yeah, I just I, I'm in love again with what Telesco has done. It seems like uh, every single year he just finds talent on talent on talent, and all he needed was a young quarterback with 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 a hell of an arm and a coach that knew how to manage in-game situations. And I feel like those were the last two things that this team really needed. And they got both of them. Uh, one um, more thing they need. What's that? Health. Well, it's they, the chargers. They're, they they're never going to get that. They got to <laughs> keep them on the field. At the, they got to do something about that. Cause man, Dude, every they're, they're, day. their doctor punctured their own quarterbacks. It's the chargers. They're never going to be healthy. We need to accept that. They're okay. cursed. I guess I guess <laughs> acceptance is what stage of grief. <laughs> but that's why but that's why Telesco I think is one of the better talent finders in the league is because <laughs> he has to be. <laughs> he has to be. <laughs> He's got to reload for all those all the attrition. Yeah, no. I I don't disagree. I just one of these years and you're probably right. I should probably just accept the fate that it's not going to happen, but man, wouldn't it be cool to see everybody stay on the field? I would love to see Bosa and Derwin James not Bosa or Derwin James. That that'd be neat. I wonder how many games they've played together. It can't be that many. Yeah, I, it's not a lot for all of them, but I I just here's here's hoping Chargers here's hoping. fans that you, you get a healthy team this year because like I said, I think all the pieces are in place. Look, health is a I want to say it's a luck thing, but that would mean they should have had some good luck by now cuz luck indicates a 50 50 balance they've they've been on the wrong side of that so i just i want to see him stay healthy i want to see every team stay healthy but especially the chargers come on man they're due uh, in terms of uh in terms of underdrafted addition or not underdrafted undrafted additions um there wasn't a whole lot of names that i was familiar with uh at least none, none that i really like dug into super hard because there's you know four or five hundred guys in every class and i can do maybe half that at most so typically the the udfas are are where uh we start getting into the names that i haven't studied super in depth but a few of the notable ones uh, to look out for um i would say alex kessman the kicker from pittsburgh uh they did get a long snapper ryan langan from georgia southern who if you pay attention to special teams, Twitter, uh, they, they liked him for his long snapping ability. Again, I know, I don't know shit about long snapping, but I feel like it's notable to bring that's, up. That's a subculture special teams, Twitter. <laughs> it does exist, but it's a subculture. Um, Elijah Stowe from Auburn, one of those, you know, quicker than fast undersized slot receiver types. He was like the third receiver at Auburn. Um, but uh, if anything, he he'll be a camp body, and maybe a practice squad guy because the Chargers receiver class or receiver group is just so damn loaded. Uh, but Kessman is the one that, in particular, that I want to bring up because he is well. He's he was a record setter in two different ways at Pittsburgh as a kicker. Number one, he set the school record for most consecutive extra points made at sixty four, which is a bigger deal than you think because I don't know of any kickers in the NFL, Justin Tucker included, that have got to 64 straight, at least since the the distance changed. So having a guy who's reliable and getting you that plus one, I think is a valuable thing in and of itself. Number two, he is the career um, leader in division one history in 50 plus field goal accuracy percentage. The original record was 60%. He crushed it this last year. Uh, ending up 12 of 18 over 50 yards in his career. 
which is 66%. So he beat it by a long shot. Now you compare that to like a Justin Tucker in the NFL who's hitting 50 plus at a 70% clip, and that might not seem like much, but again, Justin Tucker's the GOAT, and this guy's only 4% points off in 50 plus yard field goals. So as a young buck, he's pretty damn accurate from deep. What's interesting is that if you look at kind of his mid-range, that's where his accuracy falls off. Like he's accurate really short, kind of falls off in the mid-range relative to the normal averages you can expect, and then he spikes in long distance. It's the weirdest kind of accuracy distribution I think I've seen for a kicker in a while, but uh, I think that's why the Chargers picked him up is because clearly he's got a leg and he's accurate from distance and he's reliable on extra points. And they must think that they can iron out the mid range <laughs> sooner rather than later. Yeah, he's got a huge leg, uh, which is awesome because it's going to help you on kickoffs as well. Uh, this was the first UDFA class. You know, if you've followed me for a while, that I'm a UDFA fanatic. I love the draft, and and the UDFA process is always fascinating to me. The idea of free talent in terms of um, draft capital is awesome, and a, and a great way to build your roster. This is the first UDFA class I can think of in quite some time where there wasn't one name that I was like, oh, man, they got that guy? Like, yeah, I'd heard of Elijah Stove, didn't watch him a lot. I mean, saw him in some Bo Nix highlights, right? Kessman's name rings a bell, but again, don't do the special teams bit. Uh, Hunter Capmoyer from Oregon, the tight end. Like, again, saw him, wasn't their primary tight end. Like... It's just there was nobody on this list that there's always one guy you're like, that guy went undrafted? Oh, man, it's amazing. Great grab. I looked at this and I was like, hmm, I'm not saying none of these guys aren't good or that they won't make the roster or that they're not valuable. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's pretty rare for a guy that spends, oh, 400 plus hours studying the draft <laughs> every year uh, to look at a list of UDFAs and go, huh, there's nine or ten of them and nobody on that list is jumping off. So... Um, you know, best of luck to them. Hope they all stick. You know, they won't, but uh, again, if there's <laughs> one or two gems in there, great. Right. They, you know, again, Tom and his staff did their job, fill the roster with free talent. It's amazing, but it's pretty rare for me to look at a UDFA list and not be like, and that guy, and that guy, and that guy. Uh, there, there's some teams that maybe got four or five of them. And then there's the chargers where it's like, I'm not saying you're not good. I just don't know who you are. <laughs> right. You know, uh, again, like Matt Bowen said, none of that matters anymore. It doesn't matter if you're drafted. That's my favorite thing about the NFL is they don't have like a draft picks locker room and a non draft picks locker room for camp invites, UDFAs, right? They just have usually a rookie's locker room, right? And you're all in there together. And it's not like, Oh, well the drafted guys are over here and the non drafted guy. No, it's like, you're all rookies and y'all have your shot. And again, it doesn't matter how fast you ran or what conference you played in matters. If you can do what we want you to do here on this practice field. And if you do on a lot of teams, you're going to make the team like the difference between a sixth round pick and a UDFA, not it's negligible to an NFL team. They don't care about cutting a six round pick. They do it all the time. Right. And they don't care about signing a UDFA because it's cheap. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. That's the main thing is find good talent, but most importantly, find them cheap. And UDFAs are a good source of that. Uh, In terms of veteran free agents that are usually not cheap, the Chargers were were pretty active on that front as well, bringing in Corey Lindsley, uh, making him the highest paid, well, before Ragnow's deal, making him the highest paid center in the league. 
five-year, $62.5 million deal. Uh, they brought in Ryan Smith from Tampa on a million-and-a-half-dollar deal. They re-signed Brandon Faison. Uh, they brought in Christian Covington from Cincinnati, who's a rotational, yeah, I guess you can call him a flex three to five. He's played both positions in his career, more of a one-gap guy than a two-gap guy. So I imagine he'll be a, more of a rotational guy on third downs, but it's a million-dollar deal, so it's not that big of a big of a thing. Uh, Kyler Fackrell as a rotational edge from the Giants. Uh, you got Chase Daniel as, what, their quarterback three now, Uh probably just battling for a job. Again, only a million-dollar deal from the Lions, so it's not a huge commitment. Uh, Matt Filer brought him in to be presumably their starting right guard. Weirdly enough, they have uh, Jaimez listed as uh, Filer's backup at guard, not Balaga's backup at tackle, which was interesting to me. Uh, but Filer is a really good pass protector, uh, so he, he'll presumably be the starter at right guard, one of the big offensive line additions. They brought in Ode Abushi on a cheap deal to, again, presumably be their starter at left guard. Maybe if, Hi- if they see Hymas as a guard, he'll compete with Ode for that starting role. We'll see. Either way, they actually have depth at offensive line for lunch, which, which is a nice change of pace. They brought in Jared Cook at the ripe age of 34 to replace the departed Hunter Henry, which wasn't super surprising to me because he knows Lombardi's offense. He's very familiar with it. If anything, could probably help install it, similar to how Gerald Everett is going to be a huge resource for uh, pretty much everybody in the Seahawks roster in terms of installing Shane Waldron's offense. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Cook knows all the ins and outs, all the nuances, the checks, everything like that. He'll be a big resource as a veteran for Justin Herbert to get acclimated. Uh, and then they re-signed tight end Steven Anderson, who's probably going to be like their third tight end, I'm assuming, for less than a million dollars. So very active in free agency, retained some guys, signed some guys, filled some holes. The number one theme to me was protect Justin Herbert and give him weapons and you know, Staley will figure out the rest on defense. And in my opinion, that was a, a, a pretty good way to go. Yeah, for me, this class is all about one guy. It's Corey Lindsley, right? They go from, like, Justin Herbert goes from literally one of the worst centers in the entire league to one of the top three centers in the entire league, if not Undisputed. top two, right? Yeah. That's huge right there again we talked about interior pressure and how destructive it is uh plenty of pass rushers in this division so divisional games but of course there's pass rushers everywhere you go in the nfl the knowledge that you're getting a guy that is not going to get whooped three times out of five is huge for a young quarterback so it's the biggest deal it's the longest deal um Really, if you're going to rank another guy in this class, it's Matt Filer. Uh, again, that's a three-year deal, $21 million. Every other deal on the list besides Lindsley and Filer is a one-year deal for just over a million bucks at most. Like O'Day's 1.6, Kyler Fackrell's 1.5, Ryan Smith is 1.5. Everything else is in the 990, 9.20. Again, it's a low cap year. Teams don't have a lot. They went out through the bank at Corey Lindsley. Like, that's the get from free agency. Matt Filer, going to play a role. $7 million bucks again, in a short cap year is not something you chuck away indiscriminately. After that, it's just about patching holes, bringing in guys that can help you, like Jared Cook install the offense, guys that'll play situational roles, uh, 
nobody here that's really making a massive difference besides Lindsley and, and they hope Filer. And the big thing is Lindsley's very good at IDing fronts and calling protections. Not that Herbert can't do that. Um, like, you know, we saw him do mic points and, you know, call for slides and stuff like that as a rookie. It's not like he's completely incapable of it, but if Lindsley is taking that load off of his plate while Herbert is essentially learning a new offense this year, uh, I think it's just going to help Herbert transition where if he only has to worry about looking at the safeties, diagnosing coverage rotations, and he doesn't have to worry about protections and calling slides and looking at fronts and everything like that. Because Lindsley, like, you know, when Fox, like Lindsley would even do that for Rodgers, and Rodgers obviously knows how to call protections. But the fact that Rodgers could just focus on, you know, I'm going to look at Eddie Jackson and watch Eddie and not have to worry about, you know, them calling like four week on me and something like that. Like I know Lindsley's going to slide and, and, and cover my ass and, and pick it up. You know, he'll tell me if he needs a sixth guy and I'll give him, you know, Aaron Jones is his sixth, but he's going to focus on that. I get to focus on coverage. It's going to be the same thing for Herbert. You know, they're going to be looking at all the crazy shit that the chiefs are going to throw at them. Cause the chiefs love throwing crazy blitzes at people. And, you know, Lindsay's going to say like, Justin, you need to put Austin on the edge. And then that just takes that load off of Herbert. And he can be like, Austin, check release to the edge. If he comes, you're blocking. If he's not, you're releasing to the flat. Like, again, it just takes such a mental load off of Herbert where he doesn't have to look at the entire defense and he can just look at coverage. It's a massive resource for a young quarterback. And that's probably a big reason why they went out and got a veteran center instead of just drafting a young one. Because, you know, as much as we love Creed Humphrey, as much as we love Lana Dickerson, like Corey Lindsley has been calling protections in the NFL at a high level for a very long time now. And that is a skill set that is very, very hard to replace with a rookie center. Totally agree. I hope it works. <laughs> I hope because <laughs> I do not want to see Justin Herbert go the way of Joe Burrow and lose a bunch of time to, you know, getting crushed because the line didn't pick up again another blitz, right? And that was very common last year. Like we said, he made a lot of those big throws way out on the edge running for his life or right before he took it right in the chops. So mm -hmm. I don't want to see that again. <laughs> like, I want to see that as few times as possible, as do most Chargers fans, because that's going to give us the best version of whatever Lombardi and staley and herbert and everybody can come up with so um great move by them i think it's, it's key i think it's going to be key and again the difference between where they're going from and what they're going to is massive and it will show up uh in the overall that's how you re-gear an offense in a hurry you get a really good center right holds the line together calls protections doesn't let your quarterback get smacked up the middle like there's a lot of things a center does that don't necessarily show up on a stat sheet that show up on a stat sheet now moving on to uh one of i would say the biggest enigmas of the offseason in the entire league is the las vegas raiders who it's almost uh, kind of similar to, to the Rams where it's like they'll do one move that we love and then they'll do one move where we're like, ah, I don't know about that one. And it's kind of a roller coaster of emotions watching some of the personnel decisions that the Raiders make where 
like I really want to root for everything they do, but man, they make it so damn hard sometimes. But uh, we'll, we'll first start off with our, our, our coaching review. As usual, you got Mike Mayock and John Gruden. Uh, Gruden going into year four of a 10-year deal, if I remember correctly, is what he signed. It's just for a ridiculous amount of money. Mike Mayock in year three. You got Greg Olson, an offensive coordinator, also in year four with Gruden. He's been there every step of the way. Gus Bradley in his first year at defensive coordinator, um, trying to pick up the pieces that Paul Gunther unfortunately left. It was, it was it's been a little bit rough <laughs> for the Raiders defensively uh, for the last few years, and that's the least of it. When I look at this staff, I see a staff that, that knows the identity that they want, like, it's very clear what they want. They want maturity. They want toughness. They want discipline. But I'll be damned if, if on the field, they just really struggle to get all of those things. Yeah, discipline especially. I I really think Gruden, in some ways, is underrated, and in a lot of ways, he's overrated. Olsen, the first half of last year for him was amazing. Derek Carr was on fire. Raiders were rolling, and then it sort of slowly just melted off, or or not so slowly, just melted off. Um, and Gus Bradley gets brought in to take what is a group with a lot of talent that has not showed all of it. And if you really wonder or wondered where the Raiders thought they were lacking on the defensive side of the ball, look at the draft. Yeah. Look at their draft, right? They grabbed safety and linebacker. three safeties, <laughs> right? They grabbed three safeties, one of whom is going to play a very familiar role for Gus Bradley, I think, pretty quickly. But they grabbed three really good safeties that we liked all three of. Like, they know that the Jonathan Abram pick has not panned out for one reason or another. And it's a bummer because I really like Jonathan Abram, and I was excited about his pro prospects. He had a little bit of a burst when he came on the scene and then largely has sort of underperformed. Now, if he bounces back, hey, that's an embarrassment of riches, but they they took the shotgun approach. <laughs> mm-hmm. They said, we have a hole and we're going to fill it. We're going to take three shots and we're going to get at least one or two of those guys that are going to play. Um, I like the pro prospects of all three, but it'll be really interesting to see what Gus Bradley can do Uh given the talent they have on hand and how quickly he can shape them into his vision uh, of what they need to be. He's done it before. The answer is, can he do it now? The league has moved beyond where he had his greatest success, right? He's not going to remake the Legion of Boom. And if he tries, it's probably not going to go super well. He needs to, he needs to innovate and adapt uh, both to the players he has and to the way the league has moved since he ran Legion of Boom. If he does that, and the Raiders' defense is anywhere near average, right? This team could go pretty far. We'll see. I was watching a um, a Steve Sarkeesian RPO clinic from when he was at Bama, and there's a lot of defensive coaches in the room because obviously RPOs are the thing that DCs need to be able to stop. So why not go to a clinic from? I mean, no, no bullshit. One of the best coordinators in terms of structuring an offense around RPOs at the college or professional level. I know we like to shit on Sarkeesian for what happened in Atlanta, but the dude does no offense. Um, and he asked a question to all these defensive coaches, probably about half the people in the room were, were defensive coaches. And he said, how many of you guys run just 
plain uh, plain old cover three anymore. Not a single hand went up. You can't do it. You yeah. can't do it. Did it, he did he raise the, his hand afterwards and say good because I killed that? <laughs> yeah, no, right? it's, I'm the guy. When you when you look at RPOs and in particular the modern style of RPO, like you know, ten years ago RPOs, it was like we're running zone read with a backside bubble. Now, because of the rule changes, and especially in the NFL, just the lack of enforcement of rules where you got linemen three to five yards down the field, and the fact that you can ride the mesh so long and these linemen are getting down the field, it's supposed to be only a yard in the NFL, but they really don't call it to like three. And so you can ride that mesh for so long until the defense has to commit to the run because, again, the guards are picking off linebackers on the second level before you even throw the ball. And that gives you more options. You don't have to just run a backside bubble. Now you can run the glance route. Now you can basically run an RPO with a go against press. Um, and it was it was a very fascinating clinic about how you can basically eliminate cover three by just reading defenders. And and it it screws with run fits. It it screws with um, you know guys getting to zone drop landmarks on time like. It's really hard to play single high defensive structures against modern RPO focused spread passing games. And really the only way that you can limit the RPO is to play too high. And then you, you just pray to God that you have safeties that can fill the run from depth in too high. And you have to have a good defensive line as well. Uh, that's what Staley does. That's what Vic does. I'm assuming that's what Shanta Sai is going to do in Chicago is we're going to play too high. You want to run the ball on us? That's fine. I'd rather you get a four-yard carry with Eddie Jackson filling the lane late and attempting to make a tackle than getting 12 yards on a glance route because we have a safety or a linebacker getting red in space. You know, it's a give and take there. Uh, And so uh, I I think Gus Bradley knows, tying it all back into the Raiders, I think Gus Bradley knows that he can't just run cover three anymore. You could do that early era Legion of Boom. Not that they were running like, spot drop cover three you know they would match and everything like that but you just you can't do that anymore rpos are too prolific now at the nfl level where you will get eaten alive especially in that division with lombardi with reed who's i mean the chiefs run more rpos than anybody else um you just can't do it so i fully expect to see a lot more too high than maybe people are expecting this is not going to be a Pete Carroll, Seattle, cover three style defense anymore. It's going to be a lot of quarters, a lot of cover through, a lot of two man. And uh, I think with with uh, with some of the DBs they drafted, that kind of signaled what they're going to do on defense. And it's a lot different than maybe what Gus was doing in, in with the Chargers. I hope so. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> uh, because if not, if the Raiders do what they've done many times in the past, I'm not saying this is Mayock and Gruden, but they have said, hey, it worked eight years ago. We're going to bring you in now. Eight years later, we want you to do it just the way you did it before, just as well, right? Sometimes that's worked for them. Generally, it hasn't. Uh, Gus is a smart defensive coach. He's really well-liked by players. None of that matters when you're getting gashed for 12 yards by a glance, right? It doesn't matter how well-liked you are or what, again, NFL is what have you done for me lately? And he's going to have to adjust to lately, and lately is not the same as when he was in his heyday. So I hope you're right. I hope he adjusts. And the players they got, which we should get to talking about, can definitely adjust. Like, they've been doing it. They were doing it last year in college. They, 
that <laughs> defending those routes is nothing new to them. They've they've all done it. Um, so uh, you know they have the personnel again. Best coaches adapt to where the league is going, but they also adapt to the strengths of their personnel because that's different on every team. And if Gus can do that effectively while trying to teach his system, which is a tough thing to do in year one, because all these players are brand new to him. His system might not be brand new to all of them, but it's pretty new uh, to all of them. And it can be tough to get a really good read on what you have in the barn in terms of what can I do with this mix of players that I have. But you can't fault Mayock for uh, restocking uh, the roster because boy, did he. Well, why don't we get into uh, what they did get in the draft? Because, again, it was, as I said, it was kind of a roller coaster in typical Raiders fashion. Alex Leatherwood in the first round was a pick that I don't think really anybody saw coming outside of maybe two or three guys that I saw in draft media. And one of them was um, who's the, Mike Florio, who had Alex Leatherwood as a first-round pick. So I would credit to him for getting it right, but he was like the only one I can remember that actually predicted that. Uh, so I, I, I felt that was early for Leatherwood. Again, tremendous athlete, got phenomenal athletic upside, but in terms of technique, he's he's got a ways to go. So it's it's going to be on their coaching staff to, I mean, shit, this is this is an even bigger project than Colton Miller, in my opinion. And they made the Colton Miller pick work. I'm, I'm giving full credit for that, but it, it's, it is a project. In round two, you got Trayvon Merrick, which, I, you know, I said it during the draft stream. If you flipped Merrick and Leatherwood, I would have said, perfect, fine. That's great value for both of them. So in my head, that's what I'm doing. I'm just flipping Merrick and pretending he was the 17th overall pick and they got Leatherwood in the second round, and I'm super happy with it. Uh, arguably the best safety in the draft. Tremendous coverability from too high. Playing in split field coverages in the TCU system, which, again, was one of those signals where I feel like the Raiders are going to do a lot of that under Bradley even those backgrounds in cover three, they drafted two safeties that have really good man coverage ability in two high structures in Merrig and then uh, Tyree Gillespie, who they got later. In round three, they got Malcolm Kuntz, which uh, you and I both really liked as kind of a hybrid stand-up, but can also put his hand in the dirt, outside linebacker slash defensive end. Again, I'm, I'm uh, coverage-wise, I can get kind of an idea of what they're doing front-wise. I'm still not entirely sure if they're going to be running that like hybrid under front that they used to run, where you got, you know, like a heavy five on the front side and no shade, and then a three technique and a Leo on the back end. If they do, if they are doing that kind of thing, that I'm assuming Kuntz is going to be a natural backup to Yannick, and they'll just kind of rotate them both in and out in that Leo role, which I think he can do that just fine. I think it's a natural fit as a speed rusher coming off the edge. Uh, Divine Diablo, you know, a lot of people pegged him as like a Cam Chancellor clone when he was drafted, and he is. Full disclosure, he is. But again, assuming the changes that I think that Gus is going to make to his coverage philosophy, Diablo really strikes me more as like a linebacker for them rather than a true safety. And we saw some reports that that's kind of how they saw him too as well as like a will linebacker. So Again, uh, for a guy as smart as him that has really good straight line speed, not great hips, but speed and speed and instincts, I think, are a plus for him, which just screams linebacker. And then Tyree Gillespie, who I also had in my tier one of safeties, and they got him all the way in round four. Tremendous athlete, 
was used as more of a post safety at Missouri, but whenever they did go too high, like you actually saw him stop a post route to Devontae Smith, uh, doing the exact thing that you know defenses need to be able to do against these in-breaking routes off play action is drive on the ball and break it up with a well-timed hit, and he did that. You know, we saw him track Jalen Waddle down on a sweep to the edge using that 4-4 speed. We saw him stand up Najee, uh, Najee Harris on the goal line in two consecutive plays. Like, he's a very well-rounded safety. Getting him in the fourth round was just a coup. And between him and, and Merrig, it's hard to say that that uh, Abram won't start, but they're two very talented safeties, and it wouldn't shock me if he didn't start. Uh, Nate Hobbs from Illinois in the fifth round, they got him as a corner. To me, probably a special teamer. I don't necessarily project him to start over really anybody that they have on the team right now. Maybe you can work him in as a dime corner, but that screams special teams to me. Uh, And then Jimmy Morrissey, a center out of Pittsburgh. um, Wasn't super sure about his system fit, to be honest. He didn't really strike me as the bulldozer that they're looking for at that position. I felt like he would he would fit more in like a Shanahan, LaFleur, outside zone, like, you know, maybe a team that prioritizes pulling a center like Pittsburgh where they run a lot of counter. Like, I, I could see that kind of fit. I didn't necessarily see like, hey, we're running power, we're running inside zone, we're running gap, you know, move your guy off the line. Didn't really see that kind of fit. Again, not saying that I don't like Morrissey as a player, but the the place he went to as a draft pick was a little bit confusing to me. So overall, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball, absolutely loved everything the Raiders did. Fantastic draft from that perspective. Just a couple of the offensive line picks I was a, I, I was a little bit hesitant about. But overall, I would say I'm very positive about what the Raiders drafted here. Yeah, and again, Morrissey being a seventh-round pick, it's just a value pick. It's very experienced center, very savvy, good with angles and leverage. Like you said, not a power guy. But seventh round, that he was still there. It'll be interesting to see how or if he fits into the team, uh, but a player we like a lot. Uh, Leatherwood is interesting. If you watch his 2019 tape, he had some sort of breathtaking reps in 2019. And, you know, put some notes down and said one to watch now 2020 looked like he got in his own way a little bit more in terms of he used that flash of athleticism but um, as i've said before too much speed just gets you to the wrong place faster he'll oversell (laughs) like that's the leatherwood thing is he'll oversell and with that speed he gets out there really quickly and then people run back across his face now, he's a big, powerful guy. He's got great arms. I don't agree that it's more of a project than Colton Miller. I think he's farther along than Colton Miller was. Uh, Colton Miller, more of a reach, but similar. In terms of the distance they have to go if they're going to justify him at 17, uh, they, get, they got some road to travel there. Like He, he better take the Colton Miller path, and that's <laughs> a less common path for players to take. Does he have the skill to do it? He absolutely has the skill to do it. Will he do it? Hmm. NFL is a complicated place for offensive linemen, so we'll see how much of that he brings in. Merrig is amazing. Right up there is the overall safety number one for me with Richie Grant. Both of them have corner-like skills, can cover, can hit, have good size, have great instincts. He was one of the everything safeties in this draft, and they got him to play that role. Koontz, I like. It was a little bit earlier than I think a lot of people thought he should go. It was about the round where I considered him absolutely in play middle third 
Uh, really like his game. He's got a couple of great moves, and I think the Yannick backup role is one he'll slot into quite naturally. Divine Diablo, I really see as a dime backer. I don't know that they make him a full-time will. Big guy, 6'3", 225, long arms, fast, like he said, in a straight line. Loves to hit. A lot of times you see big DBs, like 6'3". They, they've got great size, but they don't play like it, right? They don't bring it. He brings it, and that's why the Cam Chancellor comparisons come out and the fact they went to the same school. Gillespie, same thing. Gillespie brings it. Blazing speed, good size, um, plays well, definitely going forward, but plays better going backwards in coverage than I think a lot of people thought he did. And like you said, you highlighted reps against top SEC talent that were top draft picks. Fourth round at 38, that's deep into the fourth round in the compensatory picks. Very solid value. And again, if two out of the three of those guys hit, the Raiders are in good shape in their defensive backfield for a while. Um, Nate Hobbs, neither here nor there, but it's, again, late fifth-round pick. Uh, Could he develop into something he can? Does he start right away? I don't think he does. And then Morrissey we talked about. So uh, pretty solid pick overall. Leatherwood a bit eye-raising, right, for a guy with, uh, you know, great athletic talent but issues to go at 17 when there were – Many other tackles on the board, if they are indeed going to play him at tackle, definitely makes you scratch your head. Um, Max, not afraid of that, but uh, I remember him going off the board and us were, we were both like, huh, <laughs> okay. It's one of the first ones we really scratched heads at. But again, if he goes to any team, go to the place where they got Colton Miller to play uh, like a pro bowler, right? Yeah. If you can do that, you've got even more tools in Leatherwood coming out of the gate. And I think, again, he's a little bit farther along in his experience curve. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, loaded up on defense. Merrick, Koontz, Diablo, Gillespie, right in a row. That's the heart of their draft. Uh, the second, two-thirds and a fourth. Um, what they did at the end of the draft. Wild cards anyways. I like Morrissey's grit. Uh, is is savvy. Very technical player. Um, but... You know, seventh round pick because he's undersized. And if you put him up against a 330 pound brute and say, stop that, uh, he's not going to do that. <laughs> he's not going to do that right now. No, not quite. Uh, in terms of undrafted free agents that they picked up, uh, I, I would say they got a few of uh, my favorite pickups in terms of value, whether it was due to health or just flat out position uh, value and everything like that. They got a few guys that I was like, damn, I can't believe that they didn't get picked anywhere. Uh, in particular, uh, you look at Matt Bushman, the tight end at a BYU. Again, I definitely thought he was going to go day three. And I think uh, what we saw was the reason why he slipped out of all seven rounds was health. So I'm, I'm hoping that he really comes back and, and is healthy because I thought he could have been, again, health notwithstanding, I thought he was like a fourth or fifth round talent. Like he's he's a really, really good player. And obviously he's never going to start over Darren Waller because there's like two tight ends on planet Earth that might start over Darren Waller. But if you really want to run 12 personnel, you could do a lot worse than Matt Bushman as your second or third tight end. That was a very, very good pickup as a UDFA. And then Trey Regis, one of your favorites. Uh, he certainly fits... The Raiders mold at running back, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's not far off. Regis is a load. Um, yeah. One of my favorite running backs to watch in this class because he just has plays that kind of defy. He's really, really well-rounded. He's not a speed back. 
He's a hammer, but he's one of those hammers that's talented. He's got a little bit of Bettis to him. Is he as good as Jerome Bettis? No, <laughs> he is not. But he's got that size, the savvy to keep his feet moving, the ability to come out of the backside of a pile. Is he going to beat anybody to the corner? No, but he's shifty, knows how to use his size, knows how to use his hands and his strength, keep people off of him. Be really interested uh, to see how they use him and how he fits into that rotation. Um, very dangerous goal line back. But then again, your starter is a very good goal line back in Josh Jacobs. So uh, where is he going to get his carries or is he going to get his carries? Don't know. Bushman, I'm with you. I would have put him at probably TE4 or 5 in this class if he was fully healthy. He wasn't, but he showed some really nice things um, working with Wilson at BYU. Uh, before he got hurt. And then Darius Stills is the other one. Um, West Virginia, defensive tackle, penetrator. He's a three-tech. Uh, you know, again, I probably thought he was going to be a... Anytime after about the mid-fifth, I would have been like, hey, that's a great place. Bit surprised he went undrafted. A little bit undersized, and definitely this wasn't the greatest draft for that position, the sort of penetrating three-tech. Uh, but could he be a very good rotational piece on what is a talented Raiders defensive line that needs a little bit more juice in the pass rush? Yeah, I could see him in a rotational piece, uh, you know, working his way into that. Is he going to just snap off and push anybody out of that rotation? I don't think so. Could he be valuable in two or three years as a rotational guy that gets pressure uh, on passing downs? Yeah, yeah, he's a talented dude. So I was surprised he didn't get drafted. And again, there's three guys out of a much bigger class, uh, but all talented guys who had the potential to get drafted. The Raiders get them, quote unquote, for free. Stills uh, uh, was one of those guys where I feel like he slipped because a lot of teams felt like they didn't know how to use him. Remember, he's six feet, 280, but he's not like an elite athlete. Like you look at his measurables, it's like, okay, 32 and a half inch vert. That's okay. Like just barely sub five second 40. Like that's okay. Like the burst numbers, you know, the, the 10 yard split and everything like that. They were fine, but we're not talking like at all of our level. Explosion. It's like when you go to a restaurant and somebody asks how it was and you go, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like you're, you're expecting, um, you know, Milton Williams, who was similar size level numbers where it's like, Oh, he jumped. 38 inches and he runs like a four five and it, like i think pe coaches are so desensitized now from all these super small but super explosive defensive tackles where it's like if you're six foot 280 but you're not an elite athlete they they almost feel like they can't justify it in their mind and they they kind of ignore the tape a little bit and on tape he you wouldn't think that he's an average athlete so the testing numbers and the tape were a little bit different um i think he's a really savvy player Really good with his hands. Excellent instincts. I feel like his ability to read the first step of an offensive lineman and make a very quick decision, uh, it's an underrated aspect for an interior pass rusher because, again, things happen really fast on the inside, and I think he diagnoses really quickly. But, again, the fact that he's small, but he's not, like, the most explosive dude, I think hurt him a lot, and that's why he ended up undrafted. But, again, for, for a team that really, really, really needs to build a strong defensive line rotation to make this defense work, Getting him as UDFA, I agree with you. Great value. I just thought of something. What's that? Imagine Max Crosby played three tech. That is not a bad comp at all. Like in terms of <laughs> yeah. mentality. You just got it. <laughs> you just got like it. The, it's two the different way players. they play. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Two different players, two different positions, but 
It's like Crosby's that guy that hangs around, understands how people are going to move. Is he going to win off the first? Is he going to win right off the snap? Not generally. That's not how he gets his sacks. Does he still get sacks? He does. And they're not just people just say, oh, guys that get sacks late, they're all about effort or hustle. Well, that's part of it. But what you talked about in terms of knowing what your opponent's going to do, diagnosing that step, how can I use my leverage? Even though I don't have the greatest speed, how can I use my leverage to counter that? Later in the down, when that guy's stepping up and I can anticipate it and go get it, Stills gets a lot of those plays because he combines good enough athleticism, hustle, savvy, keeps with it, right? And ends up getting those plays where somebody takes a step and tries to turn around and he's there. Right. And he gets a lot of those. It's not inconsistent. Some people might say, oh, it's lucky. Right. It's not lucky. Right. Matt Bowen said players that are around the ball aren't there by accident. And Stills doesn't pick up his sacks by accident, but he doesn't pick them up in that traditional, uh, you know, like I'm thinking of like Bobby Brown from this draft, who was just like, oh, my God, he just blew past the guy and blew up the quarterback before anything happened. Like those aren't the Darius Stills plays you're going to see, but he makes a lot of plays given his skill set. So great value for you know, no draft capital. And then uh, free agency for the Raiders was, uh, again, theme of the day, roller coaster. They had some signings that I was a big fan of uh, or extensions that I was a big fan of. And then they had some signings where I'm like, is that the best use of your money? Uh, so I'll just I'll, I'll kind of run through the you list sure here. You sure you want to spend uh, your money on that, son? <laughs> you sure uh, you want to do that? Uh, so I'll run through the list here. They brought in Nick Martin. Uh, as like, I, I guess you can call him a, I don't think he's going to start at center for them. I think he's a backup center for them and maybe a swing guard. Not sure quite how they see him. Uh, I, I thought they seemed pretty adamant that Andre James was going to be their starting center after they traded Rodney Hudson. So the signing of Nick Martin just screams back up to me. Uh, they got Casey Hayward who worked with Gus Bradley, uh, with the chargers and big fan of Gus Bradley. Again, as you mentioned, he's a player's coach. Um, you know, Gus actively recruited Casey and they got him. Uh, they signed him for, I think it was a one year, two and a half million dollar deal, which for a 32 year old corner, that's probably about the best he can expect, but instincts, ball skills, ability to transition, deep speed, not there anymore. But I, I think the fact that he still checks every other box with, with short area quickness and he's a savvy veteran who can diagnose route concepts really quickly. I think it's still a good signing for them. Uh, Nevin Lawson kind of continuing the theme of drafting 30 plus year old corners. They brought him back on a one-year extension. Uh, Russell Douglas, they got from Carolina, uh, on a, a one-year sub-million dollar deal, just kind of building depth. Um, I hope that Russell isn't seeing the field a lot for them, but as your fourth or fifth corner, I guess you could do worse. Uh, Yannick, uh, by the way, Russell, more of a press corner than an off corner. I feel like, uh, this is the like old cover pa- three model, right? Rasul Douglas is a is a lock for that old Seahawks. We talked about this the yes. old Seahawks boundary corner, right? Tall guy, length, physical, plays press. Not necessarily the best turn and run game, but is going to smother you at the line. <laughs> no and, turn and run game at all. <laughs> okay, I was trying to be nice. Guy's got a family. I'm, I'm right? just saying. Anyways, but I that one was like. That one was like, oh, so you can't quite get away from it, can you guys? You still need one, don't you? Just for old time's sake, like it's it's like a rabbit's foot. It's like, give me Rasul, like big long guy, go press that guy, show him how to do it. 
I think when he was with Philly, I think they made the mistake repeatedly of trying to make him an off corner, and he is absolutely not an off corner. He gave up a he lot looks, of yards and a lot of touchdowns. You know what it reminds me of is uh, Israel Mukuamu, the corner from South Carolina, who ended up playing safety this year, and I loved his tape last year. I was like, man, this guy's 6'3". He's pressing the snot out of people at South Carolina. Like, I'm going to watch this guy next year, this year. Oh, God. Played him at safety, off, like the extension of off, right? We're going to move you back 15 yards. He looked lost. He's not a safety. And then yeah. occasionally this year, they'd be like, go up again, slot safety, right? Be the big guy. Go up on the big slot and press him. And you could see his eyes would light up. He'd get up there and he'd just <laughs> blast the guy at the line. Guy wouldn't even get five yards. And it's like, that's what he does. Douglas, yeah. same way. That's his game. He's not one of those players that over time is going to round that out and suddenly become a good off corner. It's like, he's got a thing. It's how he made the league. He's good at it use them in that role. And if you don't, it's at your peril. So, um, now they brought in Yannick as well. Was that a trade or was that a signing from Baltimore? Did they trade for him? Uh, I can't remember. Cause I know Baltimore traded for him from Minnesota. Pretty sure I had the filters on free agency only. Uh, again, this was their big one. Two years, 26 million. They, they threw a bunch of money at Yannick in a small money year. Um, Really didn't throw that many dollars at anybody else. We'll we'll talk about Kenyon Drake in a minute because I have a feeling that's what you were scratching your head about. But um, the weird thing about this is they kind of are doing the Miami thing. We talked about this with the defensive line, right? Rotations and waves, guys that maybe had uh, some success or limited success in other places and the ability to just bring in five or 10 guys, put them in a defensive line rotation, move them around, run a bunch of zero. I could see Gus doing that. And they, they seem to have loaded up guys like that. Um, you know, the next guy, Solomon Thomas, same thing. Never, never really hit it in San Francisco. And it feels like some of those guys like Shaq that they brought to Miami that never really hit it at their first stop. Maybe we can bring him in, in this wave rotation on the defensive line and really get something out of them. So it's an interesting assemblage of talent, especially on the defensive line. But guys they brought in for lower deals, I like uh, probably even better than Yannick. And I was a big Yannick fan. So, so I just looked it up. So again, it was it was. Forgive me for not <laughs> remembering uh, keeping everything track. that happened in free agency. Come on, Brett. Come on. He, he was on like he was on like four teams in a calendar year. So just to recap, the Yannick and Gakwe saga. saga. <laughs> so. In March of just last year, so again, we're talking about a 12-month period, you know, he got in that spat uh, with the Khan family, with the Jaguars, said, I'm not playing for you anymore. Uh, Minnesota traded a second and conditional fifth uh, in August, right before the season started, uh, to pick up Yannick, and then literally three months later, they traded him to the Ravens to get a third-round pick and a conditional fifth, so... Already, the Vikings lost value on him, and the Jaguars are probably laughing their way to the bank because they're like, eh, we told you. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, in week 15, he actually went up against the Jags and got uh, two sacks on Gardner and, and you know, had his, had his little celebratory, you know, revenge game. Uh, and then he just saw, got signed by the Raiders to a two-year, $26 million deal. So that is how Yannick Ngakwe ended up on four teams in a calendar year, which... I can't remember that many that many uh, quote unquote star players having that happen to them, but he's one of them. Yeah, it's a very odd rotation in a career that's been fairly successful. There have been definitely been some players that have uh, I think of like um, 
Antonio Brown, right? Where Antonio Brown, again, <laughs> Raiders were involved in that one at a different stage, brought him in, didn't really stay, moved him out, you know, again, several teams in a short period. But it is it is rare for players that are playing, you know, decently well. And Yannick, look, his production suffered a little bit. Yours would too if you had four different coaches and four different systems inside of 12 months. Um but again, it looks like they're taking the shotgun approach here. You know, they bring in Yannick, they bring in Solomon Thomas, they bring in Jonathan Hankins or, or re-sign Jonathan Hankins, who's a guy I really like. One of our favorites from Buffalo and previously Seattle, Q Jeff, Quentin Jefferson, right? This is a guy that we both really like. Got a great value. One Love year, him. 3.2. Uh, you know, Jonathan Hankins, they got for 3.5. Solomon Thomas, 3.2. Uh you know, these are guys that you can bring in waves. And if you're looking at that Miami model, which was really successful last year, more teams are going to be like, hey, we can keep guys fresh. We don't need them to be out there for 60 snaps a game. If they all play 35 and we rotate them, uh, especially in sets, almost like hockey lines where they get used to what the guy next to them is doing, and we just bring them in waves and they're always fresh, we can bring pressure this way. Um it was an experiment a little bit in the way Miami did it last year. They had huge success, and this looks to be loading up in a very similar way. You know, the the one signing that, again, was weird to me was the Kenyon Drake thing, where it's, you know, you got Josh Jacobs. If you really want to bring in, you know, complimentary backs, you can do it in the draft, or you got a complimentary back in, as an undrafted free agent in Regis. You didn't. This is nothing against Kenyon Drake. I really like him as a player. Uh, he was really like one of my emerging favorite backs in the league back when he was in Miami. I, I loved him. Still love him, to be honest. Uh, hell, even at Bama when he was there, it's like, you know, the, the lightning to Derrick Henry's thunder. I remember thinking at the time, I was like, I kind of don't care which one of these guys I get. They're both really good players, and they both are really good players. Obviously, Henry's kind of a different animal but Kenyon Drake has carved a, carved out a very nice career for himself in the NFL but at this stage of roster building in a cap strapped year if you're using you know a, a 11 million dollars over two years on a backup running back when you already have a stud in Josh Jacobs and if you're just looking for a two and a three you can get them a for far cheaper and b in the draft I don't know. That was the one signing where it's like, I get it. He's a good player, but is that really the best use of your money? You know what that is? What? John Gruden. Yeah. That yeah. Mark is, he has done that since his days in Oakland. And when he went to Tampa Bay, he did the same thing. He loves running backs and he loves veterans. And you get a veteran running back and he says, yeah, I don't think, Mayock or any general manager in their right mind does that, right? But we all know that Gruden got hired first. It was for a hundred million dollars. He has the ear of the owner. He was the owner's handpicked choice to lead the Raiders back to the promised land. And if Gruden goes, you know what? I want my veteran back, right? Davis gonna is gonna get go, Davis is gonna go, Mike, sign the one he likes. And he's like, you know that Kenyon Drake guy? I like him. I yeah. like him $11 million, which is, <laughs> if you said you were going to sign Kenyon Drake as a running back, again, as a 27-year-old running back, who still has the Jets like he showed it in in Arizona, if you tell me you get him for two million, uh, you know, two years, $8 million, 
I'm like, Fine. yeah, overpaid, yeah. but okay. Like, again, like you say, he's a good back. It's not like he's 33-year-old washed up whatever that you're not going to get anything out of. That's not. The, but if you told me, hey, the value is a little bit better, I'd still be like, well, you overpaid because you can get him as UDFAs every year. But okay, I'll deal with it. You like veteran running backs? Cool. But in a cap-strapped year, when you could have got something of greater or uh, equal performance value for a whole lot less capital input, it does, that one smacked me as like, oh, they're signing him. And I was like, well, they already have Josh Jacobs. Wow, $11 million. Whoa, <laughs> okay. So they really like him, right? And it just didn't match that way. Again, good player, probably going to get some decent production out of him. Are they going to sort of recoup the investment? Not not unless Jacobs goes down and he takes primary carries and maybe not even then because you can get running backs so much cheaper. Yeah, and it, it, it's nothing against the player. That is no, just the nature of the I mean, sport. Good on him for getting his bag, right? If you told yeah. me Kenyon Drake's going to get $11 million in free agency, I would have been like, from who? <laughs> I, I but, mean, good for his agent, it. good for him. Oh, yeah, he absolutely. got that generational wealth. Like, you know, you, you can go back. Where I think he's from Alabama, if I remember correctly. Like, you can get a nice house in Alabama and live very comfortably for the rest of your life off $11 million. So good for Kenyon Drake. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> for sure. Uh, moving on now to the Broncos, who I loved almost everything they did. Well, let me rephrase. I loved everything they did, but I still feel like they're going to have some pretty deep regrets in a few years. I'll Ooh. start there. Okay. I'll start there. Um, it, w- it was one of those off seasons where it's like, that's a good player. That's a good player. That's a good player. But shit, you missed out on a quarterback on purpose. We'll get there. I, I we'll don't get want to put the cart before. We'll I don't want to put the cart before the horse. Uh, let's start out with our uh, coaching and front office review. You got George Payton, year one. At general manager, uh, I was actually pretty excited about that hire. From what I was told, he was heavily in consideration for a lot of jobs for a long time, and this is kind of the one that he was holding out for, and he got it. This was his dream job. Um, And so congrats to George Payton for getting the one job that he really, really wanted for a very long time. Uh, He always wanted to be in Denver. Great situation for him. Very talented roster. I'm a fan of Vic Fangio as a coach. I think he kind of, his patience was was rewarded, so to speak. So good job for George Payton. Uh, Vic Fangio going into year three at head coach. Pat Shermer, year two uh, at offensive coordinator. And Shermer, I think, is a very underrated OC. Um, I don't necessarily know how much of the offensive problems last year were on him. I more kind of attribute it to health because it seems like especially the skill position players, like they were either out or just flat out banged up all year long. So just going off of what we've seen from Shermer prior to last year, I still really like him as an OC. I think he does a good job of, you know, using motions and, and, you know, using all 53 and a half yards of the field horizontally to make things as easy as possible in young quarterbacks. So uh, I still have high faith in this Broncos offense under Shermer's leadership. And then you got Ed Donatel in year three, at defensive coordinator, but we all we all know who the real DC is in Denver. Like it's still Vic Fangio's defense. Uh, what's your overall take on the new look Broncos front office with the promotion 
wink, wink, nudge, nudge of John Elway and Vic Fangio going into year three? Well, I think it's good. I think Elway was ready, right? And that's probably the biggest deal. Peyton still had to be sold. There's a great article on the sort of courting of George Peyton and what Elway, how hard Elway went to the wall to get him, even knowing that he really wanted the job. And a lot of that was selling him and that Elway was ready to hand the reins over. Because if you get a guy that's not ready, even if they're getting nudged out and they're going to be breathing down your neck all the time saying, George, you're going to do the right thing. George, you're going to do the thing I want. Like that's not a situation that somebody wants to go into. They want it to be their choice and they want everybody to be happy about that, right? Whatever the choice is. And Elway was not that guy, especially not early in his career in the front office with the Broncos. And he is that guy now. He's ready. So congrats again on the patience and Elway being ready and George realizing that, that that was a a true and real thing. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, Especially happy that one of his very first big hires was Kelly Klein coming with him from the Vikings organization. Yeah. Uh, One of the highest ranking female uh, personnel evaluators in the NFL ever. So props to her. She is by all accounts. I've not had the pleasure of meeting her. She's by all accounts, one of the hardest workers in the league comes extremely highly recommended i think she's going to do great there uh vic fangio interesting to see how much of um the broncos overall record gets hung on him that's always what happens on head coaches everywhere um you know been a couple of excuses in the first couple of years now as we start year three less excuses team's pretty well loaded up Again, we'll talk about the quarterback situation, which is a situation really of their own making this year, but it seems a lot like what the Bears did with Trubisky last year, which is we're going to give him one more full ride, and then if it doesn't work, we're going to pull the trigger. Well, that that might be a year too late. We'll see. Um, again, Drew Loxie on quarterback, I think you're right. Pat Shermer, very good offensive coordinator. We could see Drew Locke ascend. Is it going to happen? Uh, I, I wouldn't actually be surprised by either. If he continues to struggle, okay. If he takes advantage of all the offensive weapons and everybody being healthy and they have a really good year and, and press for the division, I wouldn't be surprised either because Drew Locke's shown flashes. It's about consistency as it is with all young quarterbacks and, and uniting those flashes to really move your team and become a team that wins, not just the games they're supposed to. Um, Donatelle, it's a huge fan of him in Chicago. Uh, continue to be a huge fan. The defense is really good. And they got some great pieces that I really like uh, in this draft and that you really like as well. So uh, I think Ed Donatello is probably rubbing his hands together, licking his lips a little bit, going, all right, I got even even more firepower. And he had some. They lost a little bit. We'll talk about that in free agency. Uh, but some really interesting pieces for the defense. Last year it was all about loading up that track team offense to try and run with Kansas City. Most of those pieces still there. Um, Cortland Sutton was a big one. Again, you, you talked about losses and health. Like Alphas are hard to replace in the modern NFL. Alpha wide receivers go down. You don't just shuck another one. Well, at least most teams don't. You can do it in... We saw it happen in Atlanta. Um, you could probably Tampa. do it. You could do it in Tampa, and you could do it in Dallas. But there are very few other teams where you have a true alpha number one. He goes down, and you kind of don't skip a beat because you have you know Calvin Ridley behind him. Not a common situation. That's you know ten percent of the league. You know three teams maybe could do that. Yeah, they weren't able to do it in Denver. 
Love Corton Sutton as a player. Uh, happened fairly early in the year, so his recovery's been fairly long as knees go uh, these days. And I hope he comes back super healthy because he means a lot to that offense. Yeah, I I just I'm. It's another one of these rosters where I look around and I'm like, that's a stellar position group. That's a stellar position group. Love that coach. Love that coach. Love that coach. Quarterbacks are maybe. Love that coach. Love that position group. Love that position. And it's like, man, it's true. I just. It, oh, it's They're super betting it all on lock and, and they did yeah. it on purpose. That's uh, you get these post draft conversations that come out and before the draft, everybody's theorizing everybody's postulating everybody's oh I, th- I think this i think that they have to be doing this they can't be doing that right after the draft it starts to come out some teams are, are more candid than others about what they really did and the conversations they had denver wasn't really considering justin fields like they they just weren't they were pretty it's well weird to me it's, it's weird. weird to me as well because both you and i would have said something completely different and carolina was the same way carolina has been extremely candid which has been great they put out draft room videos uh they they showed their big board lots of no-nos right in in terms of classic scouting but they weren't either like they were they're basically all in on Darnold this year they they didn't even really think about it they they were they showed their final group of four and fields wasn't in it, even though uh, they showed Matt rule going up to the whiteboard and they had a very good idea. Like they're like, this was pre-draft uh, sort of confab and, and everybody was there. David Tepper, Matt rule, uh, their, uh, their GM, everybody was there. Right. And he's like, all right, Matt, go up to the board and draw what you think is going to happen. And he's like, okay. And he's writing it out. And we know this is going to be this. They only had two spots in the top seven. They were like, it's either this or this. Right since he was one of them and they nailed it like they knew exactly what was going to happen their intelligence was good and still and they said okay and if we get here with that these are our four fields wasn't in there they were all in on darnold and it turns out denver is the same way they they never seriously considered it um which to you and i is weird and and may turn out to be sort of prophetic uh if true lock you know the wheels fall off this year um but they they never even looked really which i i know has incensed a lot of broncos fans i've heard from them <laughs> they're they're not pleased with that they feel more like you and i that they would have taken that swing um but very interesting that you know again despite all the outside perception they had a very clear idea what they were doing and young quarterback for the most part unless something crazy happened was not really in their plan they they executed their plan and it looked a lot like this I I truly think that their mentality was one of two things. Either they were thinking, we're going to trade for Aaron Rodgers anyway, so let's not even bother. Let's build around him. Or they looked at last year with all the injuries and, you know, his first, you know, first year with a new coordinator for Locke. And, I mean, let's be – there was no offseason. Let's be real. It was, it was a weird fucking year. It was weird. It was just a, it was an odd year for a young quarterback to, to have to take the reins officially. Um, and so I, I feel like they wanted to give Locke a redo and, you know, he's, he's a good kid. Um, a lot of arm talent. I feel like they're like, let's, let's get Cortland back healthy. Uh, let's fix Jerry Judy's drops, which was not really a problem at Alabama. That just randomly cropped up in his rookie year. It's like, let's get KJ's hamstring back onto his femur. Uh, let's, you know, let's draft Javante Williams. Let's, 
improve the offensive line. Let, let's add pieces to the defense and let's let's figure it out. Let's see what Drew Locke is before you know we throw the baby out with the bathwater. That was, I think, the mentality they were looking at it. Now, would I still have taken Justin Fields? You're damn right. Because I had Justin Fields graded a hell of a lot higher than Drew Locke, but it's just a difference in philosophy. They want to build the supporting structure, and if the quarterback fails, then at least they know for sure it's not their fault. So it's a difference in philosophy. I can understand why they did it. Now, why don't I get into who they actually did take in the draft instead of Justin Fields? They took Pat Sertan, who was, I mean, a, about as easy of a projection at corner as you can possibly have. Uh, super smart, extremely physical, very technically refined. You know, he's got NFL bloodlines with his dad who played DB for a long time in the league. He was just an easy guy to project. Like, as far as, like, safe players in this class, I think you and I can both agree he was in that top five of, like, you know what you're getting. It's, <laughs> you're not going to fail with that pick. Very, very easy pick to make. Uh, Javante Williams in round two out of North Carolina, arguably the best running back in this class, ultra physical. His tackle breaking rate was absurd, like the best in the last 15 years. It seemed like every single carry he got, he was breaking at least one tackle. It was nuts. Not to mention, um, really good feet and hips. Like he's not just powerful, but he's shifty. He's a capable receiver. Uh, He's a very complete back. All told, love that pick. I know that Melvin Gordon's still there. Uh, Philip Lindsay's now in Houston. Uh, regardless of who else is in that backfield, wouldn't be surprised if Javante takes over the starting role sooner rather than later. He's he's that kind of dude. Uh, Quinn Miners, uh, as a interior offensive lineman, still not sure if they see him more as a center or as a guard. Worst case scenario, he's pushing Cushenberry uh, for that starting job at center, who we both loved a lot coming out of LSU, but boy, did he struggle as a rookie not just in blitz pickup, but in just flat-out pass pro. Like, he just got beat a lot, which is weird because he didn't get beat a whole lot at LSU, yeah, but he got his ass kicked. That was a massive surprise to me. And, and yeah. people ask us all the time, hey, will you go back and talk about, you know, things you were right on, things you were wrong on? We're happy to do that. Cushenberry, I'm just going to hold my hand up and be like, I was stunned because he wasn't just, like, up and down. He wasn't what you would describe as rocky. He just was, down. <laughs> he was bad. Like yeah. he was flat out bad. And and we got to see him in person at the senior bowl. We got to sit like 10 yards behind that guy and one-on-ones in the end zone and watch him stonewall the best pass rushers, interior pass rushers in the country. All of them. Right? Just rep after rep after rep. And I don't know what the hell happened. Like I I probably should take a deep dive and do that because it was honestly one of the most stunning developments of last year was like, if you'd sat me down anytime, even up after the draft and said, look, <laughs> I'm from the future and Lloyd Cushenberry is going to suck this year. I would have been like, who are you? And you came to the wrong past. Like, no, he's going to be at least middle of the road. He might have some rookie struggles. Everybody does. He's not going to be terrible. And he was terrible he's one of the worst centers in the league last year and that was a shocker because just nothing from his collegiate production his all-star production his draft test measurables uh by all accounts we didn't get to interview him but by all accounts uh, you know iq very solid football iq very solid um there was just no flag that said he was going to be terrible and he was really bad last year and i it it surprised me as much as anything that happened 
with the rookie class last year, period. So, And and if Quinn Miners is bad, too, I'm not saying he will be, but if Quinn Miners is bad, too, I will just never trust a standout senior bowl center ever again. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have PTSD because I thought Quinn Miners had just as good of a senior bowl as Lloyd Cushenberry did. So Maybe even better. We'll see. So, Maybe yeah. even better. So I think at worst he's pushing Cushenberry for the starting job at center. Or I'm sorry, be, you uh, just said pushing Cushenberry. I just that's it. <laughs> uh, or or he can be a you know a competitor at guard for them. You know they have uh, Graham Glasgow and Dalton Reisner there, so it's not like they're hurting at guard. Uh, you know Glasgow maybe could use some competition there, but again, it was one of those value picks where it's like we don't know who he's going to challenge, but he's going to challenge somebody. So I I really really like that uh, Quinn Miners pick. Baron Browning, uh, seven picks later in the third round. Full disclosure, I was not a Baron Browning stan. A lot of people were because of his athleticism. But if there's one place where I was like, ooh, that's a really good fit, it's Denver. Mainly because Vic Fangio is the greatest linebacker coach of all time. And if there's anybody that's going to make something out of the elite of the elite athlete that Baron Browning is, I'm talking like, you know, he, he, uh, to me, Nutty. he's damn near, damn near equivalent athlete to, um, who's the Penn state kid that went in the first round forgetting his name, uh, the Cowboys oh. shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you hadn't said it, I just popped it out and you just stunned me too. So we're going to cut uh, that cause that's terrible. <laughs> no, we'll leave it in. Fuck it. We're right. mortal. It's fine. We're, it's we're fine. highly mortal at this point. All I can think of is Owe, and that's not the guy. Hold on. I'm going to look it up cause now it's bothering me. Right. What? The guy we that talked about him endlessly. End. Micah yeah. Parsons. Micah yes. Parsons. Jesus Christ. Anyway. No, Baron not Browning. Jesus Christ. He went somewhere else. Micah <laughs> Parsons. Uh, he, uh, you know, equivalent athletes. Just absolutely ridiculous physical ability. If anybody's going to get the most out of him, it's going to be Vic Fangio, who has worked with and developed a who's who of Hall of Fame linebacker. Not saying that he's going to be a Hall of Famer. I'm just saying greatest linebacker coach ever. Now, whether he plays inside or outside is the question. Personally, I feel like he's going to end up outside in a Leonard Floyd-type role where he's going backwards just as much as he's going forwards. Don't necessarily think he has the eye discipline or the instincts to survive inside full-time, but again, making use of that athleticism as an outside linebacker in kind of uh, a, a Sam linebacker role that does a lot in coverage, does a lot as a pass rusher. Like that's, that's really uh, the sweet spot there, uh, sweet spot there. And then uh, they didn't have another pick till the fifth round with Caden Stearns and then Jamar Johnson, both safeties in the fifth round, both guys that I thought were going to go earlier than the fifth round. Not that Denver really had any holes at safety because they arguably have the best duo in the league with Justin Simmons and Kareem Jackson. But if your backups to that kind of duo are Jamar Johnson and Caden Stearns, you're doing something right. They're pretty well insulated at injury for that position now, so damn good picks back-to-back. Sixth round, they got Seth Williams out of Auburn, more of a jump ball specialist, but again, when you look at the starting three there uh, with Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, and K.J. Hamler, even to a degree, Tim Patrick, and they got Tyree Cleveland too. Again, probably won't see that many snaps unless it's like worst-case scenario and everybody dies (laughs) like they did last year, but for a a fifth receiver... Seth Williams, I'm I'm okay with that value. You could do a lot worse than that. Uh, and then you got Kerry Vincent, Jonathan Cooper, and Marquis Spencer 
as back-to-back-to-back seventh-round picks. The, the really big standout there is Jonathan Cooper for me as an inside-outside rusher. I, In terms of projecting him in this system, probably um, more like a Roy Robertson-Harris type role for me. Like, you bring him in on third down as an interior guy more than putting him as a, a pure edge. But for a seventh-round pick, like, you see how efficient he is as an interior rusher. Hell yeah, sign me up for that. Yeah, it's a great seventh round, and we don't say that a lot, right? The seventh round is a lottery pick. It's it's somebody your scouts really got behind, somebody with great special teams value, somebody who it was a big risk on your board for, for medical, for character, for scheme fit, whatever. Seventh round pick is like, yeah, we'll take a shot. And they took three really good shots. Kerry Vincent, not a name that we talked about, I don't think ever uh, during the lead up, but did, it was a guy I watched and I thought, now here's a guy that could be a decent nickel. <laughs> okay, Chris Collinsworth. Here's, now, here's a, guy. a guy. Yeah, that was Collinsworth. Wow. I'm going to have to wash my mouth out with soap a little bit. No. Uh, I, I really thought this is a guy that could be a decent nickel, right? A- again, not a high round pick. It's going to have to be the right system, uh, but getting him in the seventh, that's a value. Cooper, we both thought was probably like a fifth round player because he was really solid, not super flashy, but he, he, you know, he made a bunch of plays again, playing against good competition at Ohio state. Uh, certainly we liked his profile more than a lot of draft media, which had him, you know, about where he went late six, seventh. Some people had him undrafted depending on the board you looked at. We both liked him more than that. Marquis Spencer, again, another guy that you're going to roll the dice on and say, Hey, can we develop him? Uh, in front of these great linebackers as a rotational piece and again if you can't look it's seventh rounder it doesn't matter but that's a very solid seventh round pick you know ninth 11th and 26 you come away with possible slot corner for the future a guy that's a rotational rusher in some role right now and then a guy you hope develops in that role that you can probably definitely stash on the practice squad i don't think anybody's going to steal marquis spencer right and if you can get him to play in your system Cool. You just got again. It's it's kind of like just securing three guys that would have been UDFA's, and now you don't have to bid for their services. You like their fit. Obviously, your scouts are behind them. Um, there's lots of other talent on the board. You pick these three guys. I like that seventh round. There's not that many times I say that. Like, oh, nice job in the seventh round. Like you you know it's lottery picks, but they got three of them, and I think all three of them could work out. So. Yeah. Just again extremely strong draft top to bottom question for you. I was going to say this about Javante Williams. So I, I put on Twitter sometime earlier in the week that I thought Javante Williams was the most talented runner distinction runner in this draft. And I had people come back strongly and they're like, what are you nuts? You must have misspoken. Who did they think was the best pure runner? They didn't say. My guess would be Najee, right? Mm. And I'm just, that would be my guess, given who is at the top of this class, right? And I was like, no. And this this to me comes down to the kind of like Derrick Henry, Nick Chubb thing, right? Like I said last year in our all-pro deal that I think Nick Chubb is the best pure runner in the NFL. And I will stand by that, right? Because I, I, it's neck and neck. Derrick Henry's right there. Um, but if you look at you know playoff production, you look at, you just watch him run. Like I'll take Nick Chubb over Derrick Henry just as a runner. 
right? Not as an overall player, not as a playmaker, not as a CMC or an Alvin Kamara or a fantasy asset or anything else. Like as a pure runner, I want Nick Chubb. I think he's the best runner in the NFL right now. And I felt that way about Javante Williams in this draft, right? I thought he was the yeah. best runner in this draft. And I was really surprised that people pushed back like hard and they're like, you're nuts. And I was like, how can you watch Javante Williams tape and not say that's at least a plausible take? How can you say, no, flat out, you're nuts? Like the guy has speed, power, broken tackle you talked about. He's an asset in the short passing game. Is Najee a better receiver down the field? Hands down. Not even that's close. That's the advantage. That's the advantage that, that Harris has yeah. is receiving ability. Close. Yeah, not yeah. even close. But as a pure runner, I'll take Williams over Najee, and I like Najee. Again, I like Derrick Henry, right? That those, It's not like, oh, Nick Chubb's way better than Derrick Henry. He's not. It's razor thin. But I was really surprised that people came back and were like, hardcore, what are you, nuts? How can you think that? I was like, how can you not think that after watching his tape? You can say, I like Najee better because he's a better receiver, or he's more all around, or, or, or maybe you just like him as a runner a little bit better but to say it's flat out nuts to consider williams as the best runner in this draft i was i was a little stunned <laughs> i was like okay uh, yeah i would be i would be too okay just I mean, checking again, that's just a that's just a sanity check on my part and like we love we love Najee. and i if you want to talk about like complete football players that's an argument because oh, Najee's yeah. tremendously well-rounded especially as a receiver which in the modern in the modern offensive landscape having a great receiver out of the backfield that can run a full route tree has amazing ball skills like yeah fine that's an argument to make but in terms of For like sure. hey it's second and four uh you know <laughs> we're running into a loaded box like who's gonna get me that first down i would go i would go Javante. like I, I completely agree uh that's kind of a weird I was I was just like pushback. I had to reread it. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Wait, I said this really great running back is really great at running and you said I'm crazy. And I was like, <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah. weird stuff happens on Twitter. Uh, yeah, that under understatement of the damn century. Uh, <laughs> why don't we look at these UDFAs? Not not a whole lot I think worth pointing out. Um, I didn't see one guy that really Oh, jumped out to me of like he's for sure going to make the team. Uh, my one note is it's yet an, and this is I feel like going to be a theme of the off season where we see the name Air Force next to UDFAs on NFL rosters. Like that Air Force low key had a lot of NFL talent that's going to a lot of NFL camps. Like I, I, I this is what the fifth or sixth guy from Air Force that we've seen already, and we're like seven teams into this thing. Like. Loki yeah. Air Force had a lot of a lot of future no, NFL players. Scouts, like, were scouts were in Air team. Force for sure. But if there's one guy I'm going to pick out of this, I'm like, they got another uber athletic tight end out of Iowa. Oh, uh, <laughs> Sean Byer. Yeah, Sean yeah, Byer, Byer. Right. I'm like, yeah, stop yeah, me yeah. if you've heard this before. Underused at Iowa for an offensive skill player. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> Amir Smith Marset, like George Kittle. Sean Byer, like uber Noah, athletic tight Noah end. Fant. Noah, Noah Fant, they're starting to. Yeah. I was like, they have a type. Like, they went and got Sean Byer. Sean Byer was in our Balls of Clay episode. Like, serious athlete. Again, didn't have very much production because Iowa just doesn't throw to their tight ends a ton. Um, 
is a guy who could absolutely make this team as a special teamer for sure. But like you, you say this pretty often, you could do a lot worse than you could do a lot worse than Sean Byer as your third, or if you're going to carry fourth tight end, because again, he's got special teams value, crazy athlete. Like that's a guy you could get some really fun plays to. So, Oh, one, I, I lied. There is one that sticks out to me. That's not Sean Byer. Um, you know what's really fun, EJ? 250-pound fullbacks. You know what's even more fun than that? When those 250-pound fullbacks are 5'11". That is Adam Prentice out of South Carolina. Yep, human you know, bowling ball. Uh, uh, yeah, Avante Leach was called the human Coke machine. This is, this is the human tree stump. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a fullback with those dimensions before. Like, maybe Mike Tolbert... <laughs> but like that's the only one I could think of off the top of my head. Like, I kind of hope he makes the team just so that we could see a 5'11", 250 pound fullback taking on a 215 pound linebacker in the hole because that to me is just pure comedy. Yeah, people that are uh, fullback Twitter, we talked about special teams Twitter. Like fullback Twitter does indeed exist, and if if you were anywhere near fullback Twitter, they were talking about like two or three guys in this draft and Prentice was one of them because he is, yeah, he's built like a human bowling ball. He's short <laughs> and just about as wide as he is tall, super muscular, moves really well, loves to hit people. Hmm, sounds like a fullback. Yep, he is. He's a fullback. Not too many teams really value that, but again, UDFA is a free swing. You don't have to spend a draft pick. You know that you're only competing against two, maybe three other teams. And if they already sort of have a fullback, it's not the kind of position that teams carry more than one. So perfect UDFA target. Now for uh, free agency, free agency, not undrafted free agency. Uh, there were a few guys I think worth mentioning. Ronald Darby was brought in pre-Sertan pick, obviously. He was kind of the, the guy that people chalked up to like, oh, okay, he'll be that typical Fangio press corner uh, you know, the, the guy who's going to stick to guys in man and three by one. And, you know, he, he's going to handle that backside duty. And then they brought in Sertan. And it's like, well, there goes Ronald Darby's job. Now I'm kind of wondering exactly where he fits into the to the grand scheme of things, because I did feel like, you know, obviously Bryce Callahan's going to be the starting nickel, but they just took a guy, Michael Ojemudia, last year, who I felt fit that you know, field side corner role where it's like, we're playing soft and off. We got outside leverage. We're keeping eyes on the quarterback. Like it's zone, zone, zone all day. Like I, now I'm kind of wondering, it's like, is Darby the odd man out? Like they just signed him to like a three year, $30 million deal. So he's got to get snaps. So I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen between Ojemudi and Darby, but I know for sure Sertan's starting. Like he's not going to stay off the field. I guess it's not a bad situation if you're like four deep at corner and you feel good about it. But um, yeah, I, I do kind of wonder like what what Darby's role is now. And then uh, they also brought in Kyle. Fu oh God, I fucking forgot about <laughs> Kyle Fuller. I you were waiting. you were let, you were letting me hang the whole time. You were letting me hang the whole goddamn. I was like, time. he's gonna get there. I can't wait to see how he. Uh, he's gonna just. He's gonna oh, burn the God. heels off his shoes backing up. No, they didn't know. I mean. T to be fair, Sertan is a different thing because Sertan was coming from the draft and the Sertan thing is rougher to deal with because, again, pre-draft, you don't have who you want at corner. You identify who you want at corner and you go get Ronald Darby and you pay big money, $10 million, 
right? Not not huge money for a corner, but big money in a down money year for free agency. So you go out three years, 30 million bucks, you throw it at Darby, who is one of the better uh, outside corners, who is younger, 27, and you think fits your system. And I do think he fits Fangio's system. There was no way in hell, and I've discussed this on my other podcast, that Kyle Fuller should have been available. There is no way that Vic and Ed Donatel were legitimately sitting around going, you know what? I think Ryan, I think Ryan Pace is going to kick Kyle to the curb. No way it was happening. But that happened pre-draft. It did. They jumped. He had a job faster than you get a pizza. Now you've got Darby and Fuller, and you're like, what luck do we have? We've only got Fuller for a year because that's all we had money for after we pitched $30 million at Darby. But we're now starting Fuller on one side and Darby on the other from starting from nothing. That's amazingly good. They they just bless their good fortune. But then you go and pick Sertan. And yeah, you're thinking long-term. And yeah, you're probably thinking you're probably not going to be able to re-sign Fuller after this year. I get it, but you legit, like... If you don't start Sertan and Fuller, and I like Darby, right? But if you don't start Sertan and Fuller outside, I don't know, man. It's really hard to keep a $30 million guy on the bench, but you're not going to start three outside corners. I'm not going to play Sertan at slot. I'm not going to play Fuller at slot. And I would play Fuller over Darby. So the $30 million guy in my defense is sitting. That seems kind of nuts, but we'll see. I I legitimately forgot Kyle I Fuller was a Denver Bronco. I know. I saw you going to Darby and making a whole argument, and I was like, "Oh, he can't possibly because, be I thinking mean, about." But Fuller here's the thing: he shouldn't be. My 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 train of thought was correct though, where it's like there Darby's the odd man out. Whether it was Ocean Media, whether it was Fuller, like he's not playing nickel over Callahan. Like regardless, as soon as Sertan was picked, he didn't have a job. Yeah, so, not with Fuller uh, on the roster. Again, if you pick Sertan and all you had was Darby, and, and again, normal things happen and Kyle Fuller doesn't get released for no reason. Like, yeah, you Darby and Sertan on the outside with Ojemudi backing him up and Bryce Callahan in the slot, that's a, that's a very nice corner rotation in the modern NFL. The fact that you get Fuller as a gift horse for one year, nine and a half, which is thievery, but again low cap year he was lucky to get that because of when he was released there's no way you start in my mind that you start darby over fuller i just looked it up and fuller got released by the bears on march 20th and darby got signed by the broncos on march 17th if fuller got released three days earlier i bet you darby wouldn't have even been signed by the broncos in the first place because they would no, have they would have given him the 30 million bucks yeah if they had the money again money is a driving factor in this low low cap year uh, when the cap actually went, you know, backwards, reduced for the first time in forever. Um, but still, it's great fortune, but the Sertan pick looks even more questionable because if you think there's any heat in the seat for the coach of the Denver Broncos, right, it doesn't matter what happens three years from now when Sertan is ascending to one of the best corners in the league, right, and you're looking to think whether we're going to re-sign Darby and Fuller's long gone, like, if if you don't get a quarterback and win some games in the next two years, if you're in year five of the Fangio routine and you're still going 500, I, I don't, I don't care who you got a corner, man. Like you gotta have a quarterback. So it just makes that whole thing even more interesting because again, Darby and Fuller were both on board 
before the draft, and you very well could have said, very easily could have said, those are my starting outside corners. I, I'm just going to go a different way. Now, they build for the future. That's a that's a Peyton decision, right? Especially his first, first overall pick. That is a Peyton decision up and down. And he said, and not wrongly, this is a blue chip guy. It's going to be with us for a long time. Okay, I get it. I but- think, you know, it's one of those things where it's a brand new GM. It's like, what's the what's the thing you want to do as a brand new GM? Make sure your first pick. Nail it. it <laughs> yeah, make it a good one. And yeah. they they made it a good one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, finishing off these free agents, they brought back Kareem Jackson on a one-year deal for $5 million. Kareem, um, one of, I think, the most underappreciated DBs of the last 10 to 11 years. You know, started out as a corner in his career getting absolutely torched in Houston. And then all of a sudden, uh, Wade Phillips came to town and a DB coach by the name of Vance Joseph, who literally turned his career around, also was under the mentorship of Jonathan Joseph, one of the best corners of all time, and I will fight anybody who disagrees with me. Look at the PBU rankings, and J. Joe's right up there in like the top three. Like He's he's a all-time corner that is not appreciated. Uh, you know, and Kareem Jackson benefited from his mentorship a lot. And then, uh, you know, he saw time as a nickel. He saw time as a safety. He was kind of used all over the place in Houston, and, and fans down in Houston were begging for him to be converted full-time to safety because he was the best tackling DB on the team, the best tackler period on the team, even over the likes of J.J. Watt and Brian Cushing. And it's like, make that dude a safety. And they never really pulled the trigger on a full conversion. Went to Denver, was a safety year one, and was immediately one of the best safeties in the league. Kareem Jackson, again, super underappreciated football player of his generation, will never get the recognition that he deserves, but one of the best tackling DBs that I've ever seen, very smart player, bringing him in for his age 33 season uh, as just another veteran presence. You know, maybe uh, maybe Jamar Johnson, who had some tackling issues last year at Indiana, can learn a little bit from Kareem, because Kareem can still hit, that's for damn sure. Um, they also brought in Mike Boone from Minnesota on a two-year deal. Shamar Stefan, also from Minnesota, the uh, rotational defensive tackle on a one-year deal. And then, you know, the rest, it was, you know, the Cameron Fleming, uh, Eric Sobert, for, uh, the, like a backup, backup, backup tight end from Jacksonville. And then Nate Hairston, uh, they extended him also one year. So they're, what is that, like their seventh corner? <laughs> you know, there's one thing at, that at Denver point, likes. yeah. Yeah, it's they got a lot of corners. It's it's kind of their thing. They got a fetish for corners. It's, yeah, you, know, you see, whatever you see, GMs do this too. They know the guys that were underappreciated on the roster they just came from. And George Payton looks at Mike Boone and Shamar Stefan and goes, "Yo, guys, <laughs> you're up. I think you maybe didn't get your fair shake on the team you're on. I, I know this team can use you. You know, is Mike Boone going to be any more than RB three on this roster? Or not? Nope. Not likely." You know, but again, talented guy. And it's not quite like coaches bringing guys along that we talked about at the top of the podcast with the Chargers saying, hey, you know, you're going to help me. You're going to help me install a system. Right. No, it's, you know, look, you're just a good value. You're a solid player. We could sign you for a a reasonable contract. And both of those guys come over um, as sort of depth pieces that Peyton can just almost pad his new roster with and say, I know what I'm getting with these guys. I've seen them up close. 
Uh, I've got the best intel in the league on them, and, and I think they're good for whatever reason, whether it's leadership or toughness or just the ability to be their dependability every day that you know you've got a guy. So um, always interesting when those shifts occur, either in coaching or general managers, and guys bring guys they're familiar with uh, from the previous roster. And that, EJ, brings us to the last but possibly the best team in the AFC West, uh, literally and figuratively saving the best for last, the Kansas City Chiefs, who, uh, you know, they've been a Super Bowl contender each of the last three years, and I really don't see any sign of that slowing down anytime soon. Even as the roster ages, even as the cap gets strapped, if you have a head coach like Andy Reid and a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, the rest kind of doesn't matter as much. You know, it's and and you know, giving a the offensive line makeover that they did to Patrick Mahomes this year. As weird as this is to say, we might see the best version of him yet. And this is a dude who was the MVP two years ago and has been to three straight AFC Championship games. This is the best line, best offensive line he's ever had by far, and they built it in multiple ways in the draft and free agency. I thought the Chiefs had a tremendous offseason. I used your word for once, tremendous. I said it, not you. Uh, so why don't we get right into it? We'll go over the coaching staff and front office review. Brett Feach and Andy Reid in year nine together, uh, one of the pinnacles of stability in the NFL. Uh, Dave Tube uh, in year nine with the organization as well. Uh, the first four or five years just as special teams coordinator, the last half uh, also as assistant head coach. So he kind of outranks everybody not named Andy Reid. We got Eric Bieniemy in year four, also out of nine total with the organization. He also got there in 2013 with Andy Reid, year four of being the offensive coordinator, and then Steve Spagnolo in year three at defensive coordinator. Uh, I mean, where to begin? For one, I, I think Spags is one of the more underappreciated coordinators in the league on either side of the ball. I kind of feel like he he might be due, you know, him and Raheem Morris and Todd Bowles are like the three defensive coaches that I think might be due for a second head coaching gig. I feel like, uh, you know, it didn't go well for Spags the first time, but he's such a damn good coach. Like, he's such a good developer of talent. Um, in terms of the X's and O's side of football, he's amazing. And I feel like, you know, working under Andy Reid, I think some of the interpersonal stuff and some of the roster management stuff and the game planning stuff um, and just the, the the CEO nature of head coaching, I feel like he's learned a lot since his first go round. And I would not be surprised if he is positioning himself for another head coaching gig in the next couple of years here, because he is without a doubt one of the best defensive coordinators or just coordinators, period, in the NFL and guys like that don't tend to stay coordinators forever. This pyramid that we just talked about, Veach and Reed and Tube and Bianami and Spagnolo is like one of the top groups, top to bottom. We talked about uh, drafts top to bottom this year and, and consistency was a big thing. Like there's not a weak spot among those five spots, right? Those five guys are all strong. Andy Reed is a head coach. Two, Bienemy or Spagnolo could all be a head coach right now, this minute, and be successful. Like, that is, there's no other team in the league, I think, that could boast that, that they have four or five spots right at the top where 
the head coach is great. Both coordinators could absolutely be coaches right now. And then one other guy on the roster who happens to be too, who I think is long overdue for at least some head coaching, you know, interviews. Um, there's nobody with that much firepower at the top and it shows, right. That trickles down through the rest of the organization, through position coaches, through player development, through, uh, all the ways that this team works together and just continually puts itself at the top of the AFC. Casey is a threat, the threat every year. And until something changes in that lineup, right? Veach moves on or Andy Reed retires or Patrick Mahomes, something happens to him until that goes away. That's not going to change. I mean, keep in mind because of this coaching staff and because of the leadership at the top, like they were a great team even before Mahomes. It's not like they were bad and, you know, he saved the organization. They were already amazing. They were already winning the division. They were already, you know, making playoff runs and, you know, were they maybe a little bit limited or quote unquote limited with Alex Smith? Yeah, I guess you could argue that. Like obviously the upgrade from Smith to Pat, there is an upgrade there, but Alex Smith was still a really good quarterback. Honestly, the only reason why they weren't making deeper runs in 2017 and 2018 was ironically the one weakness at that time they had on the coaching staff, which was Bob Sutton. Then they got an upgrade at defensive coordinator. All of a sudden the defense started holding up their end of the bargain and helping out the offense for one. And, and you know, they win a Super Bowl. And then they go to the Super Bowl the next year and, you know, they they don't win, but you go to back back Super Bowls because they fixed the one leak in the organizational leadership structure. And that was with Steve Spagnolo. So if they can, I mean, he's 61 now. It's rare to see a coach at that age get hired for a head coaching gig. Like Vic is the last one that I think got hired. Well, I guess you could say Cully in Houston, but that's kind of its own scenario. But in terms of like a legitimate, real long-term hire, the last coach I can remember that, that got hired at around that age was Vic. And even then he was 59, I think, when he got hired. So he he would be on the older side for a head coaching hire, which maybe he won't get, get elevated again. And maybe he's just going to be a DC in Kansas city forever, which if I was a chiefs fan, that's great for them because he's a really damn good DC. And if he can be like their Brent Venables, who's just going to have an amazing defense every single year, like Venables does at Clemson and who's never going to leave for a head coaching opportunity. If you got Reed for the rest of his career, Spags for the rest of his career, Eric Bieniemy, God willing for at least one more year, because he's great for them too. Veach is not going anywhere. Like, uh, how often do you see an elite leadership structure where you might only lose twenty percent of it after this season? Like, that's crazy stability. You never see that in the NFL, especially in this era. No, if you get one guy, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, gets hot, they're they're in the they're in the loop there's usually somewhere between five seven openings per year they get interviewed multiple times right they're gone right a lot of times before they're ready is the way it pans out all these guys like we both agree that eric Bieniemy could have been a head coach two years ago definitely thought he was going to be a head coach in the last round as did many players who played with him coaches who coach with him um even to have a guy that has a really good year like brian dable right that he returned to the bills after one good year like one great year 
was very surprising, right? I was really surprised he went back to Buffalo or just basically didn't get a head coaching job. I'm not surprised he went back to Buffalo, but, um, you know, to have these guys that are again at the top of the league, it's a copycat league. It always has been. The NFL wants whatever's working. It's been working in Kansas city very strongly for the past three years. And they're all there. The idea that they could all be there next year. It's not crazy unless tube finally gets that interview or if somebody finally gets their head out of their butt and goes, Hey, Eric, the is going to be a very good head coach, not just a good coordinator. Um, but you know, would I be shocked? I'd be surprised if it was together this year again, just because there's so much talent there and that never happens. Would I be shocked? I actually kind of wouldn't when you look at this scenario, like you said, Veach isn't going anywhere. doesn't seem like Andy's going anywhere, but honestly, if Andy went somewhere, there's three guys on this roster that could ascend and keep things kind of keep the train running on time you don't see that in the nfl you just don't if and when andy retires which again i don't think is going to be anytime soon like you got a generational quarterback talent you you ride that and get as many rings as you can for Um, sure i mean god eric would get hired the next day like he would because you you want to preserve the offensive coaching support around your franchise changing quarterback like again i'm i am envious of the leadership structure in kansas city it's a one of a kind in the nfl um and yeah it's just it's it's a hell of an organization in terms of how it's run from top to bottom uh why don't we get in the draft here uh not that many picks compared to a lot of teams they only had six picks but i do feel like they got pretty good value with at least four of them i'll run through back to back you got nick bolton uh, inside linebacker out of Missouri. Personally, for me, a little bit early. Again, I, not that I don't like the player, but I felt like there were other guys at that position that maybe had a little bit more versatility and athletic upside. But if you're just trying to find like a sawed-off shotgun Denzel Perryman type linebacker where it's like, hey, in between the tackles, this dude's going to absolutely smash the run. Nick Bolton is your guy in this class. Great instincts, really good tackler. Uh, has a really good knack against zone run uh, zone run games in terms of kind of finding that crease and slipping through in the backside and getting tackles for loss. That was kind of his calling card was just blowing up zone run games. So again, he's very much like a Denzel Perryman type guy, which I would not take in the second round, but I can understand to a degree why they did it. Uh, then you come back five picks later in the second round, you get Creed Humphrey, who I thought I mean, that's like a round late for me for Creed. I thought he very easily could have gone in the first round. You're getting at least a top two center in this class. Uh, Not that they really needed one because I like Austin Blythe, but I mean, my God, if Creed's staring you in the face at the end of round two, you just take him and thank the football gods that you got that kind of value. Uh, Joshua Kando from Florida State, really athletic uh, as a fourth round pick. You're just gambling on athletic upside for edge rushers, and you trust your coaching staff to develop them. So I really like that value. Noah Gray, the tight end out of Duke. That was a pick where I was kind of like, ah, there were some other tight ends on the board that I liked a little bit better. So I wasn't super in agreement with that. But again, it's a fifth round pick. Who cares? Uh, And then you got Cornell Powell about 20 picks later in the fifth round, which is a favorite of both yours and mine. You watch him at the Senior Bowl, ultra-physical, great route runner, ball skills, uh, deceptive deep speed, really competitive with the ball in his hands on screens. I, When you look at the, uh, the makeup of the Chiefs wide receiver core, 
he is pretty much the only one that I feel kind of fits that prototypical X position where it's like we are lining him up on the line of scrimmage, go beat breast coverage, beat up corners at the line of scrimmage, you know, work those back shoulder fades, um, you know, block your ass off. He's a really good blocker. Like he is that guy to me. And they didn't really have one. You know, you got a bunch of smaller, fast guys. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like he's going to be like their guy on third and six. Like if Travis gets doubled, like it's going to be Cornell isolated on the backside and he's going to go win and you're going to throw it to him. Like he's going to be the ultimate possession receiver. He's going to be a red zone threat. And for a fifth round rookie, like every once in a while, there's a fifth round rookie receiver that vastly outperforms their draft stock. Saw it last year with Darnell Mooney. This year it's going to be Cornell Powell. I would bet my last bottom dollar that if you're, if you're betting on a, a, a day three receiver to absolutely pop off as a rookie, it's Cornell Powell. <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't be more in agreement with that. We talked about Palmer, Josh Palmer at the top uh, with the Chargers. And I put out a tweet that said, I'm not exactly sure that Cornell Powell and Josh Palmer have ever been seen in the same room because <laughs> I put up uh, their measurables. I put up their RAS scores and they are like carbon copies. And I love both of those receivers more than most people do. They both had amazing senior bowls and Powell's not just a possession receiver. He can beat you down the field. He did it at Clemson um, over and over again. And he, I love the point you brought up because everybody is sleeping on this fact. They're like, well, Kansas city has all these weapons. And I'm like, yeah, name them. Right. And where Mm -hmm. do they play? What do they fit for? So it's Tyreek and Kelsey are not going anywhere in that offense. They are, (laughs) super well oiled machine on that side, especially using them to play off each other. Like that's what that offense specializes in. So neither of those guys is going anywhere, but then who's your wide receiver two? <laughs> right. People are like, they would say Meikle, but, but he's not, a, but he's a limited skill set. That's the he's thing. Is like, that's the thing is Meikle is great at the tap pass, jet motion, bubble screen, uh, glance route. He talked about like, he'll run a glance route. Like that's, bread and butter is he your line him up on base downs you know and block and run all the routes wide receiver too and the answer is not if you're doing it right right they don't really have anybody else you could say robinson who they resigned but it's like mm, not really it's kind of that's the really what they had sammy for right and sammy's not there anymore so like Cornell Powell has a path to playing time as wide receiver two. And yeah. most people, again, in if not the highest powered offense in the league, you got a fifth round guy with a great skill set who's underrated, who has a very clear path to number two if you're looking at personnel and fit. No better, no better bet for a late round wide receiver to be productive than that. And I love Cornell Powell. I would have taken him anytime after the third. I know a lot of people think that's outlandish in this wide receiver class. He was way up there for me. I watched his tape again fully for a second time about two months after I watched him the first time. Cause I thought, man, maybe I just watched him early. Maybe I was just feeling really good that day. Like he just can't be this good, right? Everybody. I went back and watched tape. I was like, Nope. <laughs> totally confirmed rubber stamp he's just that good and he's underrated in my book and he goes to kansas city in the fifth <laughs> ah amazing and it's nothing it, it's nothing against 
Maykole. It's nothing against Robinson. It's it's nothing against Byron Pringle. It's just those those three guys are good at what they do, but they all have narrower skill sets. You can only do certain things with each of them. You know, particularly with Pringle and and Meikle, it's like they're great vertically. But again, if you're lining them up right on the line of scrimmage and you have a long press corner with 32 and a half inch arms and a mean demeanor, they're going to struggle. If you're isolating them, again, on the backside in a three by one, because Lord knows Tyreek is going to be in the slot, Kelsey's going to be in the slot, or, you know, detached, or anyway, three by one, they'll put Kelsey isolated a lot. But if they want Kelsey, like, in the strong side of the formation, they didn't really have any options before to put a guy on the backside and reliably win against press coverage one-on-one. Now they do. Now they don't have to use Kelsey as the X receiver, which I know everybody kind of looks at the Chiefs offense. It's like, oh man, they're, they're really good at kind of using Kelsey as that backside guy. Like, yeah, because they had to. They didn't have the other options. They didn't have anybody else that could win against man coverage, isolated. Now they have that guy. Like that's that to me is why uh, is why Cornell Powell is such a valuable asset. Is not only is he good in that role, but he frees you up to use arguably your second best player on offense, which is Travis Kelsey, to do more shit. <laughs> and that to me is even more dangerous than anything because now Travis Kelsey isn't pigeonholed into that one role when you want to run three by one sets. And it's it, it, it was a tremendous pick. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention their last pick, by the way, in the sixth round, which was Trey Smith, because they didn't need him. Like, their offensive line was already set. Like, they already had a really good starting five. Like, they technically didn't really need Creed either. But if your swing guard is Trey Smith and your backup center is Creed Humphrey, I mean, your starting offensive line is Orlando Brown, Joe Thune, Austin Blythe, either Kyle Long or, you know, Laurent Duverde-Tardif. Mike Remmers as your right tackle, like not that Mike Remmers is great, but I mean, shit, if he's your worst lineman, I mean, what the hell? Like again, the, the Trey Smith value as a yeah. backup guard, as maybe your third guard, because Kyle Long could be your 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 swing guard, and then you have Trey Smith as your other backup guard. Like it's insane. Like the amount of you know rich getting richer here. It's just unprecedented. I've never seen a team that went to the Super Bowl that already didn't really have that many roster holes get this much better in one offseason. It's absolutely incredible. Well, the O-line especially, and Trey Smith really highlights that. Like, Trey Smith was wildly underdrafted, and people will say medical. He had blood clot issues twice at Tennessee, but he's been free of them for well over a year and playing very well. He is a super powerful guard. He struggled a little bit at the Senior Bowl with speed. Not so much on tape at Tennessee. Like he, It's not like he's a guard without holes, but he is wildly talented at his size physically. Guys that big and strong don't move like him and don't have, quite frankly, the resume that he had at Tennessee. This is a guy that was being considered first and second round valuation after his first couple of years. People are like, if he continues to play like this, got off track with health, but again, he's been free of those issues. But in a year where people were putting up big red flags on health issues, Trey Smith slips to late in round two or late in round six, 42, 42nd pick in round six, way, way down there, basically end of the draft. You get a guy like Trey Smith that late in the draft. I don't care what else you got. And the Chiefs who got annihilated in 
in the last game they played because of offensive line holes went after it. They get Kyle Long, they get Creed Humphrey, they get Trey Smith, they sign guys. They've got, you know, Niang coming back, right? Or not coming back, but ready to play, uh, who they drafted last year and got a value on. So all of a sudden, this huge weakness that got them, you know, kicked out of the dance now becomes, wow, you didn't just like throw a couple things at it. You got some really talented players and you're coming back and it's like, no, no, we're never doing that to Mahomes again. We're building a wall in front of Mahomes. And they did it, like you said, with the draft, with free agency, with guys they drafted last year who they're getting ready, right, coming back from injury. Like the Chiefs line doesn't resemble anything <laughs> that got them smashed against Tampa. And and we can consider Orlando Brown to be their first round pick because that's what they traded for him. And if your first round pick is a Pro Bowl offensive tackle, that's the dream. You win. That's the dream. You win. Because first-round picks historically are like a 50% bet anyway. And it's it's an even smaller bet that they're a pro bowler. And it's an even smaller bet that they're a pro bowler at a premium position. You're getting a pro bowl premium position, which maybe there's like, what, like four or five that hit that way every year in the first round. And you're spending the 31st overall pick on one of those hits. Hell yeah. That's an easiest decision you could ever make. Yeah, I, Brett, I understand. Brett Veach is a genius. <laughs> yeah, and I understand that Tevin Jenkins was there, sure, but and we love Tevin Jenkins, but just take the sure thing. Take the sure thing. It's a premium position. Like, you, you gave half a billion dollars to Patrick Mahomes. Don't let that money be wasted on a broken collarbone or a, you know, a caved-in knee like, like what happened with Joe Burrow in Cincinnati. Just fucking protect the guy, and they did. Like they they did exactly what a competent organization does, which is we we look at the strength of our team, which is our quarterback. We protect it at all costs. We are not going to risk anything. We're not going to be cute. We're going to go all in on protecting our half billion dollar man because in the end of the day, he's all that matters. If Patrick Mahomes is healthy, we can win the Super Bowl any single year. If he's not healthy, better luck next year. Like that that is the team. And I, I love that they aggressively attacked that weakness and turned it into not just a good position group. They turned it into arguably the best position group, non-quarterback, on the entire roster. That is how you build a dynasty. And just, again, golf claps to Brett Veach because he did a hell of a job this offseason. Um, I do want to look at their undrafted free agents they brought in. Uh, a few that I want to bring up. First of all, all-name team, all-time all-name team, DiCaprio Boodle, corner out of Nebraska. I really want him to make the team just so I can buy a Chiefs jersey with Boodle on the back of it. I will pay any amount of money. I don't care if it's custom. I want a DiCaprio Boodle jersey in my closet by October. Can't argue. (laughs) I I don't want the jersey, but I want to see you in yours. Um, oh god some other I'll highlights do it too. i'll buy i one. know you will you now you have to you said you were gonna now shane bichelle uh former texas quarterback via smu again any quarterback that lands in the andy reed tree system being developed is the best possible landing spot right now in the nfl obviously doesn't have to play anytime soon has a bunch of tools this is a big strong guy that can run can throw um had a bunch of success at smu i you know 
I like him as a developmental quarterback. That's what I said in our pre-draft podcast. And if you're going to develop again in the NFL, perfect landing spot for him. Um, Riley Cole, linebacker from South Alabama, uh, was a senior bowl invite. Caprio Boodle, who got mentioned. And then Malik Herring, edge out of Georgia. Everybody's talking about Aziz Ojolari and with good reason. I think people kind of forgot about Malik Herring. He had some injury issues. He's got really good size. I I love him as developmental edge. He probably went undrafted because of the injury issues. His tape's pretty good. And if you're looking for, again, a defensive line to develop, you know, guys with really good size that have great athletic traits, you could do a lot worse than Spags, right? He understands how to use that. So I like Malik Herring's chances to at least stick on the practice squad, but possibly work his way in again on special teams and as a rotational guy for the Chiefs. Yeah, and again, it's this is one of those rosters where there's not a whole lot of open spots. Mm-mm. Like these these guys are gonna have to make the team on special teams, which is why you're seeing corner, which is typically like a lot of gunners. You get corner and wide receivers. Um, you know, you got personal protectors in in linebackers like Riley Cole. You know, Bichelle is as you said, developmental quarterback. He will hopefully never see the field because if he does see the field, that means. Something, something went terribly wrong. Something went terribly wrong. Uh, but in terms of tools and, you know, developing a guy that given up, you give enough preseason reps on national television and maybe you can flip him for a pick down the line. Andy Reid's always been a proponent of taking quarterbacks every like two to three years just to see if you can flip him for assets. Uh, in terms of true free agency, not undrafted free agency, they brought in uh, Jaron Reed, who was kind of a surprise cut in Seattle. Didn't really see that one coming. Very good interior pass rusher. You know, run defense is a little bit up and down. Like he has flashed very, very, very good run defense fundamentals in the past, but something kind of went awry last year. I I don't know if he was playing through something or what, but um, he took a little bit of a dip. And then uh, I think that the chiefs are just like, Hey, well, we saw what you were in the past and we know you're a really damn good pass rusher, so why don't you come join this crazy interior rotation we're building with Derek Nottie and Chris Jones and, uh, you know, Tershawn Wharton and Colin Saunders. Like, they got a million dudes on the interior now, and Reed just strengthens that even more. Uh, they re-signed Taco Charlton on a one-year deal. It's only $1.1 million, so it's, again, it's Taco Charlton. Not a huge deal, but they just need bodies. It's a flyer. Um, yeah, uh, Tooney obviously was was the big get. Five years, eighty million dollars, all pro caliber guard. Invest in your half billion dollar man. Uh, they brought in Blythe before they brought in Creed Humphrey. Uh, you know, maybe if they knew they were going to get Creed, they wouldn't have done that deal. But even then, it's only one year for a million. So I think there's going to be a healthy camp competition for starting center there. Either one of them can win it. To be to be honest, like I wouldn't be surprised if Blythe got the job. I wouldn't be surprised if Creed got the job. Uh, Jarek McKinnon, he was kind of never the same after his knee injury, which sucked because he was so explosive early on in his career in Minnesota. Like I thought he was going to be the next big thing. And then the knee injuries kind of added up. It's good that he found a home, but again, if he's seeing snaps instead of Clyde, that means something went terribly wrong. So I, I hope he doesn't see snaps. Uh, they brought in Mike Remmers on that one year deal at right tackle. I, as as scary as it sounds for Mike Remmers to start at tackle, I almost think it might be scarier if Lucas Niang does. 
So I think they brought in Mike Remmers to start at tackle so that Lucas Niang doesn't. I don't know if you've seen the videos of Niang working out in the offseason. It uh, doesn't look pretty to me. So I, as, again, we've all seen what Mike Remmers does at right tackle. I still think that would be better than Niang. So in the end, I think he starts. Uh, and then Daniel Sorensen came back. You know, Dirty Dan came back on a one-year, $2.5 million deal kind of a jack-of-all-trades, safety, slot, linebacker, does really everything that, that you need him to do. He does the dirty work. That's why they call him Dirty Dan, uh, one of the more underrated players on that defense. Uh, they brought back Demarcus Robinson on a one-year deal, and they brought uh, Blake Bell over from Dallas on a one-year deal to be a third tight end for them, I guess. Um, so, again, strengthen the strengths, uh, short up the weaknesses between the draft and free agency sprinkled in a couple UDFAs that I think are pretty interesting. And this team that was already Super Bowl ready, I don't really foresee them having any issues getting back to it for a third year in a row. No, Jaron Reed is a really interesting one because he was a, the preeminent run stopper of the year. He came out of Alabama. Like he was the guy to stop the run. It was never really didn't rush the passer that much at Alabama. Didn't have that many reps. And and there's a lot of guys that come out of Alabama like that, especially the interior defensive tackles. And you're right. It tipped a little bit to not being as steady on run defense. Uh, the idea of Jaron Reed and or Jaron Reed and um, Chris Jones on third down should legitimately keep offensive coordinators awake at night. Like that is another weapon for them to bring uh, in that situation. And it is not going to be fun because both of those guys are incredibly powerful players and Jones can win really quickly. Reed can win quickly enough on the inside, especially you're going to have to pick your poison, right? You're going to have mm-hmm. to decide who you want to put your emphasis towards. And either one of them can win in that situation, which is what Casey is banking on. Sorensen, I love. Uh, and then Belldozer is really interesting how they're going to use him. Um, Blake Bell. Casey showed a great, proclivity to do very interesting things on offense and and run kind of one-off plays to players that were let's just say uh, low tendency <laughs> to go away <laughs> from tendency and run something in a situation where they typically wouldn't Blake Bell's a guy that could convert on a couple of those and I do mean a couple it's not like he's going to be any kind of yardage receiving leader he's not but you know could he get a couple pop touchdowns uh, off the backside when it's like, oh, no, we're not accounting for that guy because he's the blocker. He, he can catch the ball in the end zone on a little five-yard out. Man, so. I, I think he'll throw it to the end zone. Remember, he played quarterback at Oklahoma. I do remember. He's a big dude. Put on some weight, played tight end, and uh, yeah. great nick, all-time nickname. We talked about all-time name team. All-time nickname, Belldozer. Come on. The Belldozer. Yeah, he was uh, – I have a lot of fond memories of watching Blake Bell at OU just – run over dudes that are 19 years old and 215 pounds soaking wet yeah my 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 dad who's an OU fan a hardcore OU fan always has a soft spot for Blake Bell wouldn't be surprised if he throws a couple touchdowns because even though he's been a tight end for a while I think he could throw 10 yards yeah I think he could throw it 10 yards to Travis Kelsey they can make that happen tight Um, end to tight end touchdowns what would tight end Twitter (laughs) would explode uh, why don't we get into uh, AFC West players uh, specifically that we are targeting in fantasy and even more specifically than that in best ball format in fantasy for our title sponsor underdog fantasy, which is the really the biggest and best best ball platform 
If you want to check out the link in the description, you can use promo code BRETT. That'll get you $25 free to use on the platform for any of their best ball contests, including Best Ball Mania, which is their $3.5 million best ball tournament that is first prize of a million dollars. And you can get entry for free just by using promo code BRETT, again, at that link down in the description below. And uh, Best Ball, if you're not familiar with it, there's no trying to start lineups. There's no getting burned by injuries. There's no getting burned by you know bad game scripts. Just whoever is on your roster at each position group that gets the most points, you get credit for those points. So it really rewards you more for excellent drafting and doing a lot of research in the offseason so that you can predict you know either undervalued or young players that are going to pop off over their draft position. Uh, it's really uh, it's really rewarding for people that do the offseason research, like, say, with these division-by-division division breakdowns, where we look at pretty much every single player in the league. So we're going to go over uh, three players each for us in the AFC West that we're targeting. I'll give my three first, and then EJ can give his three. Uh, I'm looking at Austin Eckler, KJ Hamler, and Cornell Powell, who we talked about earlier. You know, Austin Eckler for me, uh, steady as she goes, especially when it comes to receiving production and rushing production. He's going to get the ball at least 15 times a game, whether it's through the air or on the ground. And as you mentioned before, Joe Lombardi having used a not similar talent, but similar skill set in Alvin Kamara, whether if they're behind, Eckler's going to get catches. If they're ahead, Eckler's going to get carries. Either way, he's getting touches, and when he gets touches, he gets points because he's really shifty, uh, very surprisingly uh, stout through contact despite his size. Like it, He punches way above his weight class when it comes to uh, contact balance. He's one of my favorite running backs to watch in the league just because he's so damn nifty. He's like a... He's like a supercharged version of James White that's even more versatile than James White. That's saying a lot. Love Austin Eckler. Uh, my number two, KJ Hamler. This is purely, you know, my Deshaun Jackson type swing for the fences. Do I think he's going to demand a, a large target share with Cortland Sutton there and Jared Judy there and Noah Fant? Absolutely not. But 4-2 speed is 4-2 speed. And he's going to be in the slot, like their primary slot receiver, and he's going to be getting those deep overs. He's going to be getting those seam balls. Every once in a while, you know, they'll run a switch release, and he's going to get a ton of space down the boundary and just run clean by some guys. All he needs is three catches a game, and he can get me a huge amount of yardage and a touchdown. And in best ball, that's all I really need. Because, again, I don't have to worry about trying to time those starts correctly. If he pops off, which he's very capable of popping off, I get the points. He's the kind of guy that's valuable in these kind of leagues. And then uh, third, Cornell Powell. Again, as I mentioned, you're going to get him in like the last round of every single draft. He's pretty much the go-to guy that I get in like round 18 when I do 12-team uh, drafts on underdog, which I do pretty much every single day at this point. Uh, he's the, the, guy, the guy that I pretty much end every single draft with because he's always there. And I know he's going to get a shitload of snaps because he fills a role, as we just mentioned, that pretty much all the other receivers on that team don't fit. He's going to get snaps because he blocks and he beats press coverage. And if you're getting a lot of snaps, that means you're getting a lot of targets. If you're getting a lot of targets, that means you're getting a lot of points. And if you're getting a lot of points, that means you can win me a lot of money on fantasy. What say you, EJ? <laughs> I say there's a lot of money to be won in the underdog best ball tournament. That's for sure. A million bucks for first prize, three and a half million overall. It's a lot of cash. Um, yeah. I'd be spending some of my cash on Clyde Edwards-Elair. And 
last year was a little bit more by committee. He got a little bit dinged up. He had some huge games. He had, again, a bunch of games where he fell off the radar. And that's always the way it's going to be with the KC offense, right? They're going to rotate around to the hot hand. If it's Kelsey, it's going to be Kelsey one week. It's going to be Tyreek Hill almost every week. And then it's going to be some variation of Michael Hardman and, and occasionally Byron Pringle and, you know, different backs. Look, Damian Williams moved on. Le'Veon Bell moved on. Like, CEH is the preeminent back in that system. And he can run and he can catch. Last year, he was second in yards from scrimmage. We said early on in our divisional preview, would it be so weird if Clyde Edwards-Hilaire as a rookie led the Chiefs in yards from scrimmage? And we said, ah, we don't think it would be. Turns out, he came in second last year. Uh, 101 carries. 803 yards, four touchdowns at 4.4 per clip running. Um, added in 36 receptions for another 300 yards, only one TD. I think that goes up this year. I think he gets more receiving TDs because he can do it. Um, and again, he is now the preeminent option. They have some other folks they brought in. Nobody's competing with him. He is the A number one alpha in the backfield, and he can be in there on run or pass downs. You don't have to pull him. So going to be one of those guys you're going to have to spend a high round pick on he's not going to be there in the 15th round um but i think people are sleeping on him a little bit just because of the variance in best ball you don't have to worry about that uh the next one is straight up chalk one of the few tight ends i'll take tell you to take darren waller mm-hmm. doesn't produce like a tight end he's a wide receiver folks i mean they they call him a tight end if you need to play him in your flex block great but again best ball doesn't matter 107 107 receptions, 1196 yards, nine TDs, 11.2 per. Doesn't sound like a tight end. Like this guy yeah. produces yards, catches, points. He's going to get you all that. Even with the way the Raiders are trying to balance the offense, I don't see a huge reduction. Like Carr loves him. He's going to throw to him. When he does, it produces. That's going to continue, period. And then my last one's Cortland Sutton. I think he comes raging back from the injury again. He got injured really early last year, not really late last year. He's had a lot of time to heal up. Um, I've had the good fortune to talk to Cortland Sutton just briefly a couple of times. He was one of my pre-draft favorites. He was my wide receiver one the year he came out. Uh, he got wind of that on Twitter. Uh, basically said, <laughs> you know, Twitter needs more analysts like you. Okay, Cortland Sutton thinks I'm all right. Uh, he's insanely competitive, Yeah. right? There, I When I say raging back, I think he comes raging back. And again, he's the alpha. We talked about this with Kenny Galladay, that when Kenny Galladay was in the Lions lineup, it was just different. When Cortland Sutton is in the, is in the Denver lineup, it's just different. He's going to win those balls. He's going to be productive. Um, and some people might be saying, well, he was injured or, or even just kind of plain old forget about him in a loaded division. Don't forget about Cortland Sutton this year. I, your money's going to be well spent getting him. And then we talked about Javante Williams. That's just a rookie sleeper value. Javante Williams is the best back on Denver right now. He's going to be getting number one carries, if not in week one, by like week two or three. They really don't have anybody else that can hold a candle to him. He's going to get the preeminent share. And anytime you can get a running back that's going to get the preeminent share of their team's carries, it's a worthwhile pick. You know, you brought up like that one rookie sleeper. If I had one rookie sleeper, it's somebody that we already talked about today, and that's Josh Palmer, because if literally anybody gets hurt with the Chargers, which it's the Chargers, that's not exactly a crazy thought. Josh Palmer's going to start, and Josh Palmer, he's going to eat. Like, he's he's one injury away from having a lot of y- 
yards. Yeah, I mean if, a lot. <laughs> if they have an injury, I could see, especially one early. And again, I'm not wishing injury on anybody. I hope everybody. I already said this, but I'm going to say it again. I hope everybody on the Chargers stays healthy. If they don't, and somebody goes down in the receiving core early, I could see Josh Palmer having a uh, a season very similar to T Higgins last year in Cincinnati. Yeah. Like not, ver- not that dissimilar in skill no, set either. Like very yeah. similar. People might be like, that's blasphemy. Like it's not like Palmer is sneaky. Good. He was undervalued and Herbert can put him to use. So it, it depends on him getting some snaps, which right now it doesn't look like he's going to get a lot, but if he does get snaps, Oh yeah, he's going to put up points. Now, closing out the show with one last topic, and this was actually brought up by people in the comments last week, was, you know, who do we think are, are going to be the best and the worst teams in this division? That was something that people asked. It's like, instead of, well, beyond just breaking down, you know, all the changes and our general thoughts on the teams, like, who, how do we think this division stacks up? Uh, this is one of those divisions where I think it's pretty easy to say who we think the best team is, and that's Kansas City. The Chargers aren't that far behind, and I do think that the Chargers can split with them in their head-to-heads. But out of a 17-game season, who do I think is going to get the most wins, even if they split head-to-head? Kansas City's a pretty good bet. Like they, they don't have any holes on the roster. They have the best coach. They have the best quarterback. It's pretty much hard to see Kansas City as anything other but a Super Bowl favorite by a decent margin. So I would say Kansas City, at least for me, is my runaway best team. As far as worst team in the division, as it was phrased, uh, (laughs) there's not really a bad team here. Now, I could say, are the Raiders the most annoyingly average team? Sure. But here's the thing. The Raiders are going to start out six and two. And and then they're going to end up, you know, nine and eight. Because that just seems to happen with the Raiders is they come out, they play to their talent. We get super excited. We say, this is the year. And then they completely collapsed the back half of the season. I don't know why that happens every single year, but it does. And that's why I say painfully average. Because until I see them not just start a season strong, but finish strong, it's hard for me to really put them over Kansas City. It's hard for me to put them over a very talented Denver roster and an even more talented Chargers roster. Like, they have a good quarterback. I think they have a good coaching staff. I think they have uh, a lot of pieces that they just drafted that are going to make their defense better. They have weapons. Their offensive line is fine, in my opinion. Maybe it's not what it used to be, but I think it's, I think it's still good. But until they can prove to me that they won't completely and utterly collapse once November hits, I don't know. I just I don't feel good about you know taking any of these long shot bets on the Raiders to win the division. Like I'd rather do it on you know the Chargers or Denver than the Raiders at this point, because it seems like every single year I get really excited about them. Then they break my heart. Yeah. I, this is a really interesting division because Kansas city is like the absolute lock. Like if Kansas city stunk this year, it would be the biggest shock. I think in the NFL, like they just easily way too much going for them to stink. And that's even if something happens, uh, just too many good pieces to be bad right and the other three teams in this division all have kind of the same argument for the reason they can bomb out right if we're talking about worst right chargers every year super talented team injuries and then typically it's been you know coaching just kind of underperform right and they they always end up middling 
they just don't end up there. Every year, people are like, it's going to be the Chargers year. Stop me if you've heard that one. Like, every yeah. year. And then they don't. So does Staley break that curse with, again, a very talented roster and they stay healthy and make a run? We hope so. Can I bet on it? It's like you and the Raiders. Ah, I bet on that every year and it never pans out. When am I going to learn? Raiders, same way. You got to finish strong, right? You got to finish tough down the stretch. And this team has been one thing, and it is not tough down the stretch. They were bullies in the first half of the year. They looked as good as anybody. Carr was sort of pushing his way into the MVP discussion, right? And then can't win the close ones, can't put it together, can't not things that tough teams do is pitch away games like that so that's their argument to be the worst team in the division and then denver is is lock gonna is lock gonna put it together or not right because i don't the the defense is gonna be tough like that defense is gonna be tough so they're gonna play a lot of low scoring games but is then lock gonna be able to unlock all that offensive talent that they've assembled and start racking up points regularly if he is they could absolutely be right there contesting with kansas city for the top of the division if he doesn't they're going to be right down battling for the bottom with you know again if these scenarios come true with the raiders or the chargers right they all have a they all have a pretty solid argument to bounce off the bottom whereas the chiefs uh, have every argument to stay at the top so chiefs clear top and then a real race to see who if anybody ascends and i hope it's a couple of them right but you know, it, all three of them have historically found a way not to be there uh, pretty regularly. And uh, I'd love to see them all break that habit. But um, like you said, they break your heart enough and it I, those bets become long shots as opposed to like betting on KC is the opposite of a long shot. Right. I just remember. And again, I, I Raiders fans plug your ears. You know, they were six and three. Halfway through November, they were six and three, drive, driver's seat for the playoffs, and then they go two and five over the remainder of the season. You know what their wins were? It was Greg Williams calling blitz zero and them hitting a hail mary to Rugs, and then in week seventeen they beat a battered and broken Broncos team. Like they didn't like they very easily could have finished the year like oh and seven or whatever how many ever games they had remaining like that's inexcusable for that level of talent that they had i don't know i just don't understand the raiders i don't understand how like they are such a first half of the season type of team and then whether it's lack of adjustments because like there's their second half point differential is also like weirdly awful like worst in the league like maybe like it's a it's a it's a tale of adjustments or lack of adjustments because their first halves typically were better in their second halves and then their first half of the season was also better in their second half of the season. <laughs> I, I honestly should probably do like a, a film room study on it. It's like why, why did they suck? Because on paper they su- they shouldn't have sucked in the last yeah. half of the season and they just well, did. Especially not with the way they started. Right? If you think back to like late October, they were thrashing teams. Yeah. Right. They beat Jared, the Chiefs. They they, they were like, they, it's finally dialed in. Yeah. They played toe to toe with the Chiefs. Right. And and yeah. it wasn't lucky bounces or, you know, interceptions being run back for touchdowns or weird stuff like they stood up and played at the level. And everybody said, whoa, is this, yeah. you know, 
not a changing of the guard, but like the the clear message was the Raiders have gotten it together. They're firing on all cylinders. This is cool. And then it stopped. Like on a dime, right? Yeah, it just inexplicably. St- it just stopped and they didn't have another quality win for the rest of the season. And you kept, you know, a month into that, you're like, okay, are they, they're, they're going to bounce back, right? They're going to. There, so because again, Derek Carr didn't go down with injury. It wasn't like there was a moment where oh, the season's over. Like they just didn't win anymore, and it was like you kept thinking, "Where's that team from October that was mashing people?" And it never came back. And it was yeah. it was very odd. It was a tale of two seasons, right? First half, second half, distinctly different. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to do like a, a deep dive on that at some point. Uh, you know, maybe it's too depressing of a talk- topic for like the off season. Maybe Raiders fans <laughs> don't want to see it. They want something more optimistic, but right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll save it for like the second half of this season. If shit starts going South again, I, I really will have to do something on this phenomenon. Cause that would be like the fourth straight year that they would fall apart in the second half of the year, which is like just unprecedented. But anyway, yeah, the Raiders are weird overall. Like none of these teams are bad. Like the Raiders are a good team. Chargers are a good team. Broncos, I think, they have questions to answer, but it's a good roster. And then obviously the Chiefs are the Chiefs. Like, I don't see any redheaded stepchild in this division. I don't see any like team that's going to get run over by the rest of the division. We're not talking about the Houston Texans here. You know, we're not talking about the Jags. Like, and even then the Jags are not bad. But like, there, there's several teams in the NFL right now where it's like, man, you you're going to have it rough this year. I don't think I can point to any of these teams and say you're going to win less than seven games. I, I would be actually shocked if any of them won less than seven games. Yeah, I would say something went wrong, uh, you know, and something may go wrong. Something usually goes wrong. Uh, that's the way the NFL, that's why the NFL season is not chalk. That's why paper is, uh, the old saying is paper is different than dirt, right? On paper, all these teams have talent. All these teams have a yeah. path to at least 500 or better. Some of them a lot better. I'd say most of them a lot better, again, if it all goes the right way, but it never all goes the right way. So it'll be about who gets the breaks, who stays healthy, um, and just, you know, whether or not they can break their tendencies. Chargers have to stay healthy. Raiders have to be tough in the second half of the season. Denver just kind of has to put it together, like, consistently and start and start stacking quality wins. And, and maybe they don't lean on Drew to do that. Maybe they leave on more of a defensive philosophy, which seems a weird strategy in this division. Um, but, you know, maybe it works for them. You know, they have the talent to do it, certainly at corner. <laughs> Heck, they could field two teams at corners uh, and be better than probably half the teams in the league. So uh, everybody's got a path. It's a little bit different. It's going to be a wildly entertaining division. The Probably the most surprising thing that could happen for me this year in this division is if any of them were boring. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing we can count on is entertainment in the yeah, AFC West. Yeah, absolutely. Always sh- entertaining. Fire, big fire shootouts. Um, we're going to try and go to at least a couple of these games because, again, Chargers play, you know, about 12 miles, 12 miles from your house. So we're going to yeah. try and uh, we want to get to a Chiefs game. We want to get to the Chiefs-Buffalo game. I know you're slated to go there. I'm thinking about trying to get there as well. Like, these are games you want to go to. You want to see these teams play because they have great rosters and and they can win on any given week. Chiefs probably will give will win on any given week. So fascinating division, ton of fun. Um, lots more divisions to come, which also have fascinating storylines. But this is a really kind of oddly balanced one. You know, preeminent power at the top, and then three other teams that could 
win big or lose big and and we'd be you know kind of not really surprised historically by either <laughs> yeah. and that's what makes them so damn fun uh what do you say we get out of here, EJ? Because we are pushing Lord of the Rings movie lengths yes. at this point. No, we like are... editors, <laughs> editors cut of Lord of the Rings. This is getting ridiculous, but fun. So we hope you guys like it. Again, keep the suggestions coming. The best and worst came from a fan suggestion uh, last week. We'll try and keep these interesting and relevant. Uh, we got some really good feedback on the first one. Seems like everybody really dug it. It's doing really well. Uh, so we'll be dropping one of these a week. And again, check out Underdog Fantasy. Go try and win a million bucks because, you know, Uh, It's there for the taking. You might as well. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you again for watching. Thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with what what division are we doing next, DJ? Uh, I think we are going to go to NFC South. NFC South. All right. Uh, Hopefully Julio gets traded by then so that we have something to talk about. So until then, we'll see you guys next week. Later. Later.